and welcome to the Sunny 16 podcast for another week. I have literally no idea what show number it is, but maybe one of my fabulous co-hosts will be able to illuminate me. Let's try John. John, how are you? I'm fine, thank you very much, Graham. I th- oh, I was going to take a guess at 220-ish. Brilliant. Wonderfully specific. Thank you so much, John. You're a great help. Claire, I believe in you. Uh, one, it's great to have you here as always. And also, what show number is this? I think it's 223. 223. I mean, it's possible. Anything's possible. (laughs) We'll never know. There's literally no way of finding out. Maybe, maybe our fabulous guest will know. Although that does seem like a real long shot, but his guesses can't be any worse than yours. So uh, let's welcome to the podcast a very special guest, the delight that is Shane Balkowicz. Shane, welcome to the show. Thanks, Graham and Claire and John for having me on. It means a lot. It's an absolute delight to hear, have you here with us. Um, now, I suspect that many people uh, will be familiar with uh, at least some of your work and hopefully with your name as well, um, because your stuff has been, you've had stuff that's been very much in all of the public's awareness over the last year in particular, um, which we will come on to, but there's so much more. There's so much amazing stuff that you have done over the last 12 years, because this is the thing... That is, in many ways, I like to think that Shane and I have much in common. We both picked up uh, analog <laughs> photography twelve years ago. Now, in the following, I was eight. I was eight years ago. You're twelve years ago, but I, I still don't know what I'm doing. No, no. In 2012 is what I mean. Eight years ago. You're quite right. I'm bad with numbers as well as photography. But in the last eight years, um, you've now got work that's. Um, in the Library of Congress, you've got work that's in the Smithsonian, uh, you've got your first book out, which is the first, uh, I don't know, a chapter, first first part mm. of an incredible body of work that you're putting together. You had a photograph of Greta Thunberg, which has been seen by millions and millions of people um, in the last eight years. I think, I think my mum's got one of her pictures on her mantelpiece. So in many ways, you and I are like twins. Um, but there seems like there's more to explore with what you're doing. Um, for anybody who hasn't come across your work before, one, uh, shame on you. Um, but two, how... Well, I suppose let's start with a brief description of, of what you do in the simplest level. You are a wet plate photographer that's a word a wet plate photographer um you are using this very old technique but you've only been doing it since 2012 um how did you come to get into wet plate photography completely cold with no previous interest whatsoever in photography yeah um it's it's called wet plate collodion it dates back to uh frederick scott archer invented this started uh, working on this and we believe 1848 he wrote an article in the chemist um, in 1851 um, sharing his invention with the world and um, I was online one day uh, looking at um, just like we all do and I saw an image and um, something drew me to that image I asked the photographer uh, what 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 is so special about this? What am I seeing? I, d- I didn't understand what what am I seeing here that it just looked it was black and white obviously and it was it was more than just the black and white um, aspect of it. Um, I knew it was old immediately. You you immediately felt this 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 um, this archaic kind of feel about the image, 
And I asked him, I said, what is that? And he says, it's, well, it's wet plate collodion. And um, at this point in my life, I had, um, you know, I have taken, I had taken pictures, obviously, um, but I had never owned a camera, a personal camera that I went to the store and said, okay, I'm going to intently take photographs today. Never occurred to me. Um, and he explained it to me. I got onto Google. I did some research and um, I went back to him. His name was Paul DeLorenz. And I just spoke with him yesterday, by the way. So here's this relationship that started way back then. And, and, I, and I give him credit every, every time I talk to him or email him. I always give him credit. And it's, it's this joke between him and I now um, that, I, that I've probably thanked him a thousand times. But <laughs> um, he says, well, um, are you a photographer? And I said, no, I don't even own a camera. And he said, um, you know, that he had been a photographer for some years and, and that he was, uh, you know, had a difficult time with this and that there was no way that a non-photographer was ever going to teach himself wet plate photography. And um, within 45 days of that conversation, I had made my first wet plate on October 4, 2012 with my brother. That's quite spectacular. What was the picture that you saw? What, what was the seed that planted itself in your mind? I would I would love romantically to think that it was some nude of a woman or something that just like <laughs> you know like, like this, this this you know this 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 male thing that just kind of like was attracted to this photograph and fell in love with this this portrait or something but it wasn't it was of a motorcycle um, <laughs> and it, it was you know I look back at it and I I have the photograph saved um, it's actually in the documentary um, as well they they they. They, it flies by the screen really quickly, but it shows mm. you that first photograph that captured me. So there, the answer is there's nothing spectacular about that photograph that should have drew, you know, drew me in like it did, and, but it did, and I'm just so fortunate. I'm just so fortunate because, you know, at that time I was 44 years of age and I had no creative outlet um, in my life. I, I was a businessman. I was, a you know, a registered nurse um, by trade and... Um, I just had no, I always adored what artists could do. I always, I always valued, I was envious of what, uh, you know, painters could do or even musicians could do or, uh, you know, potters could do. And I was always envious and I had hired over my life. I've always sought people that were talented in the arts and I would pay them or commission pieces and, and, and be very involved in those commission pieces. Um, and, then at 44 years of age, uh, some, you know, a, a camera came into my life and everything changed. As midlife crisis is to go, at least wet plate clothing has the benefit of being novel. Um, I don't know many people uh, who have gone that way, um, but you already have a Porsche, right? So you've got that box ticked off, so you don't need that midlife crisis. Um, were you at the time looking for an outlet was it something that was actively in your mind that you were trying to find something that could release these desires for artistic output no i don't i i think i was open to it i had um i had done marionettes um i had even tried my hand at painting so i mean i was always kind of dabbling in all these things but i have no talents you have to understand graham i have no talent whatsoever there's not a talent in my in my body i'm serious so i had no talent so but when the students come out i have students come out from the university and the junior college every year and i've got some more coming out uh, last last month they came out and they're coming out next month and i just tell them just be like open to things you know what i mean it's it doesn't have to 
I don't know. I think if I would have had my eyes wide open and was expecting something to fall on my lap, I don't think it would have happened. Um, but that photograph came to me. I had a feeling about it. And for whatever reason, I decided to ask and then I chased it. And then I, you know, then I came home to, and my wife and I said, well, I'm going to, you know, I found out about this old 165 year old photographic technique. I would just love to try this. And she looks at me like I'm absolutely mad. I mean, it made, it made no sense to her. Um, and so you're talking about a person that had never been in a dark room in his entire life. I had never stepped in a dark room. The first dark room that I ever stepped in is the one I contrived in that 45 day period. I didn't even know what I needed to, to make a dark room. I didn't understand an F-stop. Um, I didn't understand exposure times. I didn't understand none of the stuff. Um, I didn't really understand how light worked. I could, I can honestly tell you, um, that I did not really understand that I was using light to create my first images. I mean, I like sitting, it seems odd, but I was chasing this image so hard and all I cared about was getting an image, something to appear. I wasn't in the mindset that, you know, you can actually play with light, that I can move light fixtures around and stuff. It was all just fully light the subject and see if something can appear on the glass. And that's, that was the, the beginnings of, uh, of my, my artistic journey. What was it, do you think, uh, or maybe do you know, that particularly about this wet plate collodion, the, this print that you saw, and, and I assume that you still see in them now, that spoke to you so clearly? Because I, you, you're you uh, an engaged and interested in person in the arts, you've already said, you will have seen over the years countless black and white pictures over the years, and none of them had ever inspired you to pick up a camera mm -hmm. beforehand. What do you think it was about the specific look from this technique that not only inspired you to want to have a go at photography, but to want to have a go at arguably one of the most difficult processes there is to pick up and do? I think it's the imperfections. I think it was the imperfections. Um, you know, I think it was the feel of the old. I knew it was modern. And, and I've always been like a history buff. That's always been very, you know, history's always been something that I've, I've adored. Um, and it was something about, oh, we can still do this today. And then, you know, it doesn't take much reading to realize, wow, there's, there's, there's a handful of people still keeping this old process alive. And, and, and you just can get, you know, you can, you can take it to a, a level um, of interest that, uh, I'm not sure, but I think it's about the imperfections. And I didn't understand about the beautiful things about wet plate. And I should, if you don't mind me sharing with your, with your listeners real quick, uh, you know, the archivability of this process, uh, process that these images of whatever medium you put them on, if it's on tin or if it's on glass, I happen to shoot everything on black glass. Um, it, the, the images are made out of pure silver. Um, pure, pure silver um, is, it doesn't degrade. It doesn't fall apart. It doesn't fade. Um, the analogy that I use when the students come in is if I set a, a silver spoon on the ground and come back 500 years from now, what's on the ground? And the answer has to be a silver spoon. And these images will outlast any other images that most people make is because they're, they're made out of uh, silver, um, which is, is really um, is really romantic. The archivability to think about um, something here long after you're gone uh, there's there's just something that it it drew me in really quickly, and I and I did come to that realization 
um, rather quickly about uh, the, the process. And then, you know, you start learning about, and it wasn't until, you know, I, I, my research and other things is about the, um, the, the resolution of these images. I'm, I'm writing in molecules of silver, so these images are um, written in molecules of silver. Um, it takes about two billion molecules of silver to actually be able to visualize it with the human eye. So you can take any one of my plates um, and you know how with film you can see grain even with like a magnifying glass. Um, you can take any one of my plates to any university and put the plate under a microscope, a high-powered microscope, and you can't get to the pixel grain that makes up the image. So not only are these plates archival, they're, 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 they'll be here for a long, very long time properly taken care of, but they're also the highest resolution images man have ever made, some of them. And um, that is just, and, and we're using 165 year old technology to do this. Yeah. And, and I've always argued is, so why did we abandon this in 1885? Why did this become, and understand these aren't the thoughts that I had back in 2012. These are, this is me reflecting and on my work and what I'm doing here over the last eight years. But, you know, you have to ask yourselves, why did we, um, why did we abandon this? And, and the reason I believe People abandon these older processes because they're they're you know they're not convenient. No, you know if you had, I have to have a dark room relatively right with me when I make an image. So when I went and made those photographs of Greta Thunberg down at Standing Rock on the, the Native American Reservation, I had to have a dark room in the back of my car that I climb into and put the shroud around me. I mean, can you imagine how many iPhone photographs would be taken today if if you had to have a dark room with you? <laughs> That's an interesting idea, interesting thought process. I mean, this would be a really good time, actually, both for myself and for listeners who are not familiar. Could you talk us through what the process of shooting wet plate collodion is? Because it's so different from, well, I mean, in many ways it's the same, but in many, there's some real big differences from shooting uh, ordinary film. Yes. Um, so we start with um, collodion. Uh, collodion had, uh, Frederick Scott Archer didn't invent collodion, by the way, in 1848. He knew about this collodion. And as a, as a nurse, I was, I, I knew of collodion as well. So collodion, you put yourself back in the, in the Victorian era and say, for instance, you and I are, you know, on a caravan or on a horse or something and you fall off and get your arm cut or something on a piece of barbed wire or whatever it may be, or someone cuts you with a knife or something like that. I'm not if I was, today, am I? That's more likely. No, no. I'm, I'm coming up with these, these, these grand ideas for what you and I were doing back in 160 years ago. But let's put ourselves back there. So I'm a doctor um, and I would have a bottle of ether with me. Um, as a doctor, because if I had to extract your tooth or cut your arm off, um, you know, for surgery, I would have <laughs> to. Oh, what is going on in this story? <laughs> <laughs> I, I told you I'm very dramatic and romantic. But anyway, so I would have a bottle of ether with me and I'm getting to your answer. I promise you, I will get to your answer. So I have a bottle of ether with me and then I would, you know, you'd have a gun or a firearm and you'd have gun cotton, um, which is cellulose. The, you know, the wadding that they put in the end of guns back in that era. And you would, um, to make collodion, you would take the cellulose and put it in a bottle of ether. You'd swish it around. The ether, um, the cellulose would dissolve in the ether and you would make collodion. I would go up to your open wound. I would pour the collodion into your wound and hold your wound shut. And I could actually, it was like a liquid bandage from the Victorian era. Archer knew about this, this like liquid glue, this, this substance. It's, it's not, I'm trying to think of the consistency for you guys um, to give you an idea. It's not, it's thinner than like maple syrup, obviously. Um, but 
but it, it, it's not as thin as, as water. And um, you could seal a wound shut without stitches in the field with this collodion. And I've actually used my collodion on, you know, I cut my finger on a piece of glass or something in the studio, and I just go over and pour some collodion stings like hell um, on my on my wound and hold it to, hold it shut and my, my, my finger will stop bleeding. So what Frederick Sartre, and this is the long story, is, um, I know I'm sorry I'm going about this long, such a long way, but Archer knew about collodion. He needed to figure out how to get silver molecules onto a, a, a glass plate or a, a tin plate. And um, he knew that he figured out or knew about the affinity between bromide and silver molecules. So he made, essentially took collodion, which he didn't invent, but he added bromide to it. And it's the bromide salts that have an affinity towards the silver molecules, and that's, so we pour the, it's called salted collodion, we add the bromide salts to the collodion, and we pour that on a plate, that plate is then um, immersed into a bath of 10% silver nitrate for approximately three minutes, and during that time, the bromide attracts the, the silver uh, onto the plate, and then at that point, it's a photosensitive plate. Um, the box, the do silver you have nitrate. To, do you have to do that part under safe light? Or in the dark or anything? No, no, you, you only have to, yeah, that's a very good question. Um, so everything can be in natural light up to the point, because remember, until I get the silver on the plate, it's not photosensitive. So the collodion and the bromide, it just sits in a clear bottle in my in my, in my my dark room. So that, that, okay. that's not photosensitive. But um, but so, but the box, the silver box that we put, uh, we, um, we sensitize our plates in is it's blacked out. So there's no light gets in there. So the moment I immerse that plate and there's this little holder that you just kind of gently put the plate down into the silver nitrate, um, then you shut the lid right away because you don't want any of that ambient light getting to, into the top of your box and exposing your plate. And then um, you get your photosensitive plate. Um, it's called wet plate for a reason. If, if the plate dries at any moment, um, you know, uh, you lose the image. So you can't, you know, pour a plate, put in, you know, and then let it dry or, or, or sensitize it and then put in a plate holder and go away for a half hour and come back. You, you have to do that. So there's this, once the plate's poured, there's this stepping process that you have to follow all these steps. And if you don't, you, if you, you know, if you just steer away from any one of those steps, you're not going to get an image. So then, um, is this getting too winded? No, no, crack on. Yeah. Okay, so photosensitive plate, three minutes. So pour the collodion on the plate, immerse it in the silver nitrate. Uh, three minutes, um, Go. To, I usually at this time, I take this time to do my composition and so forth. Come back, load. Now I have to be in the safe light, so that's when I'm in the box. And back in the Victorian era, um, if they were on the road, they would just have a wood box with a, a curtain, a, a blackout curtain behind them. And there would be a panel, a window, a glass window of red glass. And that's what they'd use as a safe light. So then you would unload your plate in this safe light environment and put in your plate holder, get it to your camera, do your exposure, and then come back. And you have to, again, now remember the plate's drying while you do this. Um, so then you have to get back to the, the, the dark room, unload the plate. You have to pour the developer on the plate. You have to rinse it really good. You have to fix it immediately after that. And then you have to rinse it again. And then it has to go on the drying rack. And then at some point, in the future, um, you know, I talked about that silver spoon on the ground about the archivability. Um, there's one last process that we have to do is that we have to pour a layer of varnish or lacquer or shellac over the silver molecules at some point to lock out the oxygen so we don't get oxidization because that story about coming back 500 years and that spoons on the ground 
the spoon, old silver spoon, is still going to be there, but it will be black because it will have tarnished because oxygen would have gotten to it and it would have oxidized. So they figured out, you know, way back when that if you pour this varnish or shellac over the silver molecules, um, you block out the oxygen. If you get no oxygen, you get no tarnishing. It's an incredible technique, um, and as you said, it's well. I was going to say it's hard to imagine why it died out. It's not hard to imagine actually. Because I've read accounts of um, uh, naturalists. I can't remember who it was, but one naturalist in particular who was going to go and try and take pictures. And you hear about these stories of climbing up waterfalls and doing it with glass plates and all the equipment to do that. And it's like it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. Um, but for a um, a photographic t technique to take out and about, it's severely limiting, um, which is you, most of your work is studio-based, isn't it? Yeah, and, and, you know, people have that misconception. They think, oh, could you just come here with, you know, take my picture here? It's like, ah, it doesn't, you know, I can. I mean, if Greta Thunberg shows up or Evander Holyfield shows up or, you know, someone, you know, you, you can, and, and I do go out in the field, but I, I would say, you know, last year I made 400 plates to 2019. Um, you know, if I was out in the field and I, I shoot around my studio, so you can go about 50, 100 yards, 100 yards away from my studio and they get back into the darkroom. But I would say I probably only took my, my darkroom out two or three times um, in 2020. Yeah. How long do you have before it dries? Or, and is it weather dependent as well, like temperature it dependent? It is, it absolutely. It's environment dependent. So um, a couple of weeks ago, I went to the the Capitol grounds here. Um, they Because of the COVID deaths, um, there was a gentleman, his, his mother had passed away and he started this flag memorial. So there was a North Dakota flag for each two people that had passed away and there was this, so there's this group of flags sitting in this field. They're just little short little flags. They're only about a foot tall. And um, he asked, he said, can you come take, you know, a wet plate of these flags for me to, to um, honor um, all the people that have passed. And it, I just, I could not, my, my nursing heart in me could not, I was going to, no matter what on that day, pack up everything here from my studio and go to, on the field. And we did, we were able to capture that. And, and the name of the plate was North Dakotans Departed. And we, I took um, an exercise ball that my daughter painted with white little dots, which represents the virus. It's also the same exercise ball that was uh, represented in my, my work called Girl with Virus. Um, and I just put it amongst the flags and we knocked over some of the flags onto the ground. And it's this, this scene where it's like the virus came through and just knocked North Dakotans over. And, but, you know, we were in the field that day and it was windy that day and um, it can get really dicey. You know, you only maybe have in studio, maybe I have, maybe I could get away with eight minutes or something, eight to 10 minutes, maybe if mm -hmm. it's, you know, nice and air conditioned, but in the studio um, I had a situation where I was down at, um, I was where Sitting Bull was murdered um, in his cabin. I was down there with Ernie LaPointe, the great grandson of Sitting Bull. And Ernie said, well, let me show you the Grand River. So I threw my little five by seven camera over my shoulder. I was walking there and it was this rough terrain and, and here this little tributary opened up and, and you know, the thought of Sitting Bull bathing there or taking water to drink from this, this little tributary, you know, back in the 1880s was, you know, it was very, very, um, it captured me. So I, I set my camera down and I knew the shot it's called um, the Grand River at Sitting Bull's Cabin is the name of the plate. And I look back and my dark room in my car was like 250 yards away. And it was like 98 degrees out. Wow. So I'm like, how in the hell am I going to get to and fro over this rough terrain? My, my, my four by four would not have made it to where my camera was set up. 
you know, going back to your analogy, these guys or your example, these guys climbing these hills and stuff. This is just my little thing. And I got modern technology, right? I'm not on a buggy and with a, a horse. So I walked back to the dark room, poured the plate, sat there, I waited for it to sensitize, loaded the plate, and I ran with, and, and I run every other day. I ran as fast as I could to the camera, did my one second exposure, capped the lens, and ran back to the, the, the dark room 250 yards away in this blistering heat with the wind. And if you look at that, if you get a chance to look at that image, you'll see up in the left-hand corner, it's, it's black. And that's where that veil of dryness was already coming. And, you know, within maybe a minute or two minutes after that, the whole image would have been lost. But mm -hmm. I was able to, um, I was able to get to and from very quickly, but it, it's one of those, it's one of those hindrances. I quite like that though, because it, it tells the story of that in the image as well then, doesn't it? Yeah, you like, can, and if you look in the center of that image, there's um, there's all these striations and all these crazy little waves, and that's just essentially the silver. I mean, remember the plate's still wet, so that silver's jostling on this plate as I'm running. I um, <laughs> I'm running through the field and and um, to get back there. But you know, people think of this as inconveniences, and and, and sure, it's an it's it's a damn inconvenience. All these things that this thing's required, but I don't know anything different, and that's what I keep telling people is they. You know, I hear people, oh, that's such, that's so much difficult. And, you know, the long exposure times, nobody can take portraits with 10 seconds of exposure and, you know, all these things because people just say, well, it's not possible or it's difficult. And these are, it's not a good enough reason. And I don't know any other process and I don't care to know any other process. So these are just the realm that I created. It's no different if I was back in the 1850s, if I was going to take photographs, you know, there was only a couple of, photographic processes that I would be practicing, right? I mean, I probably the daguerreotype, I could have done that, um, or, you know, the wet plate, and there's all kinds of contact prints. But my point is, is that it's not a hindrance to me. I don't, I work within the bounds of what the limitations, and I don't, I never consider it a limitation. I just, I work around it, and, and it's just my work. It becomes my work. It becomes my workflow. It's, it's just all I know, and if that's all you know, it's, it, it's not that difficult. You mentioned the exposure time there of, of a second for the picture you took of Ernie Lapointe. Um, how, what are the average exposure times like? What's a bound? Because it's easy when you think of old 1800s um, images, think, oh, you're going to be sat there for minutes because of the case of daguerreotypes and some yeah, of those yeah, very yeah. early posts. But that's not the case, is it, with wet, but they're not that long. Well, they're not that long because understand that our my, I'm using Carl Zeiss Tessar lenses. It's the only lens that I use. My studio lens that I usually count on is a 300 millimeter f 4.5 Carl Zeiss Tessar, which was probably made in the mid 1980s. You know, it's a, a rather modern German piece of glass, so it's much faster. Um, I do have uh, older brass lenses, um, and you know, they're just they're just slow. So. Um, uh, and the formulas have probably changed too from then. So we got faster formulas today, the Clodian. Um, but, you know, when I was outside just a couple weeks ago shooting those flags, it was three seconds um, at F10. Um, in studio every week, you will never see me op uh, close the lens down any more than wide open. So F4.5 all day long, never, I've never shot an exposure other than F4.5 in studio, and I'm always shooting for around 10 seconds. Sometimes, you know, in the summer, strong light, I can get to eight seconds. Sometimes in the winter, I can get to 12 seconds, but it's, 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 those are, that's my sweet spot. And I could get faster exposures, and I have no interest. 
I, I have friends that use strobes and I, I, I have a 5,000 watt bell card, which is like a, a nuclear bomb going off when I shoot this thing. <laughs> and, and I got instant exposures and I couldn't get to my work. I had no, I just could not find my, I looked at the plate that I made with this bell card. I only probably made three of them. And I said, that's not me. And mm. I, it's been, it's been in the, in the, um, you know, in the storage closet ever since. So, but I, I tried it, you know what I mean? So you're always trying, but I could get faster exposure. And I got friends that got, you know, they get much faster exposures. I don't, I, I love the thought, the romantic thought of, you know, these are not captures. These are not instant captures. These are 10 second movies that, you know, I've said this many times. There's, there's heartbeats there. There's a couple shallow breaths. There's a blink. Um, there's blood coursing through your veins. And you know what I, I like the best is that there's a thought that I'm actually capturing someone's thought. They're, the person while I'm making their exposure is having some thought in their head and somehow that translates to the work. And that's why portraits is where I'm, I'm stuck. Yeah, that was one of the things that really interested me about your work because you said that you you weren't looking for an artistic medium. You weren't you weren't hunting down. You didn't have this idea in your head of I want to do this now. I need to find the medium, and yet it feels like somewhere in the back of your head there was just this thing waiting because you saw this image and the look of it spoke to you. But the image was well, of a thing. It was of a motorbike, and yet right from the get go you've shot portraits um and you and you your work is clearly um inspired by the the portraits of the time especially in your early stuff you you a lot of your work really does harken back to when wet plate was being used originally um and it, and it has that very distinct look to it one because of the medium because um wet plate is a, an orthochromatic medium so you've got the effect that that has but also as you said because you're just using um the light the way you are so you've got these long exposures so it it does give you a really distinctive look that that um fits with you had you was portraiture something that was in a, a particular passion for you in terms of just appreciation before you got into shooting it no no i had no i had never even appreciated portraits it's it doesn't make any sense I had, I had no, I, but I, once I started doing portraits, I like, I, I very seldom will you find a wet plate. I mean, you can, and I've made 3,715 of these or something like that. Um, very, I would say a handful of them are any kind of still life that does not have some person in it somewhere. And it's always about the eyes. It's always about, mm. it's always about that person because, um, and you know, you know, the, that portrait, not the portrait, but that photograph I told you, uh, of uh, the Grand River at Sitting Bull's cabin. There's nobody in that portrait. Um, but, and I'm just going to give you my slant on this, and I'm not knocking portrait photographers by any chance or anything like that, but this is just my 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 take on it. Um, you know, if I take a photograph of a, a conifer tree in a, in a river, and like I did in that portrait there, um, it's a kind of for tree in a river. When I take a portrait of, or I take a portrait, not a picture, but I take a portrait of a person, all those questions that um, are elicited, like, who is this? Um, I wonder what they did. I wonder what year this was taken. I wonder where it was taken. Um, there's that human element. And, and maybe it's the oncology nurse in me um, that that uh, is drawn to this 
I understand that we're only here on this planet for a, a finite number of years. And um, I know that a portrait of a person, even, you know, I've got antique um, wet plates here that I bought online that have no identifying marks at all. I don't know who the person is. I don't know where it was taken. I know nothing about it, even when it was taken. Um, and, you know, you lose some things there. So the, the all these things, the, all these questions, so all of my plates are all labeled. They all have the date on it. They all have the date of birth of my sitter. They all have the sitter's full name, including middle name. If there's a title for the plate, it always says by Shane Bulk, which nostalgic at West Plate Studio, Bismarck, North Dakota. So all the things that I want on these old plates, it, every plate that I've ever made, you know, documenting um, this is very important. Documentation is very important. And I preach it to the students all the time. You know, um, a picture is great. Um, you know, if you don't know where that conifer tree is, you know what I mean? It could be just any portrait of any conifer tree. But I, I would think if you put a man next to that conifer tree, I think there's some value there, some added value to that picture because you want, you know, there's that connection between you being a human, you identifying them as a human, and there's that connection. Um, and I just don't get that connection when I don't have a person of some sort or even it doesn't even have to be a person's face. It could just be someone's hands, you know, or their feet or I mean, whatever you want to do. As long if you got a person involved, there's this there's there's this, um, this affinity towards each other that I think um, is why me. And this is just me. I'm only speaking about me. It's why I shoot portraits. Yeah. You know, Shane, you have different people um, coming to your studio. So you were saying that you began taking like your brother and taking your family and then you have like strangers that come into your studio. Mm -hmm. How do you, what's the process for you of arriving at, um, if a stranger walks through through your door, um, arriving at maybe what pose you're going to um place them in and or maybe what you what what they're going to wear how do you get that is that something that you instinctively see um as soon as they come through the door or is it sort of a collaboration between you and the person how do you arrive i suppose particularly with a stranger at the final image well it, it really depends on um what what i'm shooting for like if, if you ask me the answer if you you ask me about my native american series versus my creative work i mean there's two there's two really sides of me is my creative work um where i'm uh, where I, I essentially i feel like i'm playing which you know it's it's so reassuring to be 51 years old and be able to play i mean every friday people come in here we have such a wonderful time and i look at them and say isn't this fun? we're like a bunch of kids here and and that's that's the mood but if it's my native american work um you know i never i, I try to keep the integrity of that work so those any of my native american pieces if you're looking at them um i don't ever introduce any uh, articles of clothing or any props at all um some of the previous photographers that captured like edward curtis and and goff and so forth um they were uh they've been looked badly upon in some ways where you know, they would introduce like a vest and then you'd see the vest with this tribe and then the same vest would be in this tribe hundreds of miles away and that kind of thing. So I, I, I really, for the integrity, I, I was aware of that uh, problem. So I've, I've done really well not, I never introduced some people ask me, well, do you have a, do you have a spear or a bow and arrow I can use? And it's like, no, I, and even if I did, I would take your picture with it. So um, that, that's my native American work. It's just, um, you know, I've got uh, six or seven, 
uh, Native Americans coming in this Friday over the you know the whole day, and uh, they'll walk in and and um, I'll see what they brought with them. But a lot of times they have ideas, and it's all about collaborating. So it's not about just what I want. Um, my creative side, um, I usually have you know I'll invite someone out if I see an interesting face or um, someone that may interest me, and then you know you kind of have a feel about their style, and then you. We talk about oh what should we wear or if I if I find a piece of art that inspired the shoot and then we'll say well this is what we're going to use this as inspiration and and we should get this 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 and this and then we work on it and they bring it in and I bring in what I have and then we kind of go from there so there's there's really two different flavors of my work I'm more of the the Native American is more documentary work mm-hmm. and then um, the creative work I, I, anything goes I mean anything I, I mean I shot uh, Princess Leia taking a photograph of Chewbacca. It's called Portrait of a Wookiee. I just I just shot that two weeks ago. And and it was just my friend from high school had him and his girlfriend had these fabulous, she looked just like Princess Leia and he had this this, uh, this Chewbacca outfit. And it was like, I have this idea of Princess Leia taking a photograph. So I took a picture of Princess Leia taking a photograph of, of Chewbacca in my studio. And it was just fun. And it doesn't have to be always serious. But you know, um, but we had an idea what we were going to try to do, and 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 we did it, and it, and it turned out rather rather nice. So it it just really depends, and and sometimes, um, but it's always about trust. So if you're a stranger the first time, I have to earn your trust because I think that trust comes across in the photograph. So it's never Claire, come on in, take your coat uh, off, your coat off, and sit in the chair and just let me do my thing. There's always the introduction. There's always me explaining the process to you, Claire. There's mm-hmm. always, okay, let me show you the dark room. Oh, uh, by the way, this is my bottle of clothing. I have to pour this onto the plate. We have to do this. And then then they're involved. Then I've got them vested. And then when they're vested, and then they, I explain to them, okay, this is 10 seconds of exposure. Your iPhone camera takes it in 1 60th of a second. So it's 600 times longer for me to take your portrait. You, I, I put these things in terms for everyone so that they understand where I'm coming from. And by that time, I have them. I mean, I, 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 I've piqued their interest and they're like, oh, I never really thought about that. I never really thought about that. Do you know about you, silver? I mean, do you, I, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I, I was just going to ask, do you take the, um, the, the sitters into the dark room and show them the image appearing afterwards as well? Oh, every time. Right? Never, never, never or not. Every, I mean, every, and if you're in the, if I was, if you three were here and I was taking Claire's uh, portrait, you know, you and, and uh, Graham would be under the dark cloth with me. I mean, everyone, I mean, everyone, everyone that's not in, in, in the, in the seat is under the dark cloth with me. I mean, it's, I, I, you know, I compose it and I said, what do you think about this? And I'm always taking, um, you know, I'm always getting people's uh, opinions. It's 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 a collaboration, but it, but but the, but then that goes to the trust. And once you got the trust, yeah, I think it can show in the portrait. I think it can show in the portrait. So it, it is a um, an interactive space that I've created here. It's interactive. It's 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 not oh let let the uh, you know let him do things behind the the curtain and not show us you know i'm not the the wizard of oz pulling all the levers and 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 keeping the secrets there's no secrets here i'll show you everything you'll you'll get to see the whole process from front to beginning and everyone sees it the whole process um, from front to start and and in that sharing i think i earn um, i earn some trust I wanted to talk uh, quickly about the silver. I don't know if you, you know, we talked about the archivability, but silver, um, 
is not natural to Earth. Or, um, you're aware of that? Uh, probably not. No. <laughs> well, I, I just I, it just occurred to me. I wanted to share this with your 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 listeners. Is that there's never been enough energy in the formation of Earth to create the the any of the heavy metals, the platinums, the leads, the golds, the silver. None of them. None of those. The the, the formation of Earth. There was never enough energy to ever create those heavy metals. That's why we can't we can't make gold and silver and platinum and nickel and stuff here on Earth because you don't have enough energy. The only the only place there was ever enough energy is the explosion of a star. So and so the silver and the gold and the heavy metals and, and particularly the silver, which I'm making my images out of, came here on asteroids, meteorites, um, or extraterrestrial bodies as they collided with Earth. So the silver that we collect on the on the on the top of the soil of Earth, it just happens, you know, in in um, San Francisco and California, they have a lot of gold there. Well, you know, that, that was spread there by an extraterrestrial body. So think about the silver that all comprises all my images coming to Earth in that manner. It's it's phenomenal. That is phenomenal. You touched on the work that you've done. I mean, I think arguably to this point perhaps the most important work that you're doing um with the portraiture of the native americans um how much involvement how aware uh, or, or how sort of plugged into that side of things were you before you first got in touch with ernie lapointe um and 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 what was it that led to that first contact with him i never had one Native American in my life. Not one Native American in my life as a friend um, that I knew or I could call up on the phone or identify with or go out for a cup of coffee. Not one. Um, so the, I, I stumble. How do I stumble into this? I mean, um, I had learned about Orlando Scott Goff here in Bismarck, North Dakota, the wet plate artist um, that was before me. Um, I know exactly. I drive by I, on the way here to my studio today to talk to you, uh, uh, fair people. Um, I drove by his studio. That was his studio in the 1880s. And uh, he had taken the first ever photograph of Sitting Bull in Bismarck, North Dakota, out of his studio here. And I found out about that photograph. And I just, I just at that point, I just became um, um, fixated on this in this man and actually I worked with a historian for two years we wrote the definitive peer-reviewed paper on nothing had ever been written about Orlando Scott Goff in any concrete um, formal sense and uh, me and Luha for Mill spent two years I wanted to pay back this this gentleman that came before me so we spent two years we even found his grave took a picture of his grave and the Historical Society of North Dakota used our 16-page paper as their entire journal article they dedicated the entire journal, which is a quarterly thing that they do here in the state. Our, our state's huge museum, um, their history, they dedicated the entire journal uh, to our article about Orlando Scott Goff, and I was able to research all these photographs and stuff. But that was his claim to fame as taking the first ever photograph of Sitting Bull. And um, I found out, I read a newspaper article, or it was an online article from the Smithsonian. They had... Um, uh, I want to say a tuff of hair and some leggings from Sitting Bull that they thought were personal items that they should want to get back to the uh, to the, the, the families of Sitting Bull. So Ernie Lapointe is the great grandson of Sitting Bull. He knew, obviously, uh, and, and had his family tree that showed that who he was. 
Um, and But it was like, I want to say they took seven years or six or seven years, something like that, to try to, you know, if you're going to give some leggings, you can about imagine the street value for leggings. City Bulls leggings would probably have the street value in millions and millions of dollars. Um, and, and the Smithsonian wanted to give it back. So after this exhaustive research, they came back to Ernie and said, you're right, Ernie, you are the the person that was rightfully should be given this. So they gave these back to Ernie LaPointe. I read about that article and about that little um, adventure. And um, I found out he was in South Dakota and I called him and he picked up the phone and um, we've been friends ever since. And that was the first ever Native American portrait I ever did. I took a native, I took a photograph of the great grandson of City Bull in Bismarck, North Dakota in the wet plate process 135 years after Orlando Scott Goff took his great grandfather's. Could you ever have imagined where that would lead you? No, because at the time it wasn't like, okay, it wasn't like that afternoon. Oh, I should do more of these uh, Native American portraits. It wasn't anything like that. Um, but the, um, that, that, that portrait's rather significant as well, because at this point I, would not, I did not have my relationship or, or my rapport with the Historical Society, the State Historical Society of North Dakota. So it was Ernie's plate. It's called Eternal Field. Um, and if you look at it, there was actually, and, and he tells the story, the funny story, he, uh, last time I was with him, he says, well, there was trucks driving behind me. And he said, there was a waste management dumpster just, you know, within feet of, within, you know, right in front of me. And, and he said, I, I, I was looking at you and I was thinking, you're crazy. There's no way that this portrait's ever going to come turn out. And, and he's right. There was a waste management dumpster just within feet of, of him standing there. Um, and there was trucks, modern day trucks driving behind him. And, and the process ignored it all and captured him in the field. And it was that plate um, that the State Historical Society of North Dakota took in. That was my first plate. So that's, that's ground zero for my work being archived there. And as of, you know, as of this conversation today, I, I think I got about 600 plates with them. Um, 430, some of them are, are my Native American series and, and other plates um, um, that I've been able to get up there. So uh, it's a huge honor. I mean, how many photographers have the... I say this all the time, and um, how many photographers have the ability um, and the trust of their state archives to just to give, you know, you, you make a picture and, and, and the, you know, within a couple of weeks, it can be up in the, in the archive being, being curated indefinitely. I mean, you just, you can't make this stuff up and it's, it's, it's such an honor. So I can't, you know, I gotta, I can't let anyone down. What, both to you and to the Native Americans, what is the importance of these pictures that you're taking and the fact that they are being cared for in the way that they are? Well, I, I, I can't, I don't want to speak for them. For me, um, I think it's about, uh, for me, and I, it's about proving, I, I know the atrocities that occurred here in North America, uh, what we had done to the Native Americans. Um, and I know that Edward Curtis, you know, in the early 1900s, and he was doing dry plates and in, in, in different kind of contact prints and stuff. I understand that it wasn't wet plating, but he was he was thinking, you know, 100 years ago that um, that they would not be here, that their their them as a people would not be here. And I, I would think that I would love to think that uh, Edward Curtis would. If he could walk in my studio now and see my Native Americans coming in, and and then you know he would he would he would have known about the wet plate process because he probably practiced it in the early 1900s or he had known about it. You know what I mean? Like, would he believe that in 2020 there would be a photographer practicing a process that was before him taking portraits of Native Americans and that they're still here with their regalia, they're still here with their language, they're still here with their food, they're still here with their dance, 
They're still here with their culture. Um, they're still here. And I, I think that would, I mean, he, that would put a smile on his face because he would have been proven wrong. The, the pictures that you take and the way that you take them, and as you said, the way that they, the stuff that they choose to bring in and present themselves, it provides a really tight link between pictures taken back then and your pictures now. I mean, for, for people looking in, in the future, th thank goodness you do write on the back of all of your um, plates because otherwise they could just assume, oh, these are from the early 1900s. And um, I know that in a, the documentary, which we'll come on to later, but um, there's a point where it's been talked about the fact that one of the biggest problems that the Native Americans uh, are, suffer from is that people just assume that they're not around anymore. Uh, and and it's, it, it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and so having these pictures, they're going, no, this is still here. And, and in the strength that it is, is really, really important for maintaining an identity to the outside world and also for the communities themselves. Um, it seems hugely important. And people think we're like playing dress up or something. You know, I mean? we're not playing dress up. I'm asking the, these 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 people to come in for a formal portrait. And guess what they're going to bring? Just like you would, Claire. If I asked you for a portrait, you would bring your your finest dress, right? You'd bring your really nice dress in, right? Something that was important to you. Something maybe your grandmother gave to you, or you know what I mean? Something significant. You would. Uh, we all would. We'd all get dressed up in the you know the best that we have. This is the best that they have, and it just happens to be these are these are this is the regalia. People, you know, I, you know, people call it costumes, and it's just like I, it's just that's not the word to use. It's regalia. These are this is very important, significant clothing, and we're not playing dress up. None of all the regalia you see on all of my sitters for every single Northern Plains Native American uh, plate is the is what they brought to my studio nothing more and yeah. and, and and that just proves that their 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 traditions and their clothing and, and everything about them i mean i was um you know i was about four years into this native american series and um i was uh i was approached to uh have uh, give be given my own native american name and I just, I couldn't believe it. They had a formal ceremony for me here in the studio. It took about an hour. We had exchanging of gifts. And, um, you know, this elder came in and had the ceremony and gave me the name Shadowcatcher, which in Hadassah is Meishte Ekagoche. And, and I'm destroying that with my, my, um, my own language, but that's, uh, that's the best that I can do. Mm -hmm. um, but it was it was a huge honor to uh, to have them come in and acknowledge acknowledge me for the work that I was doing, and it was unexpected. Um, but I, I tell the students as well: just throw love out there in the world, do something, um, do something for someone else, and you never know what's going to come back. Never expect anything to come back. But if you if you if you put enough karma out in the world, good karma, um, you know, do things for other people, um, you're not going to be let down. You're not going to be let down. So, um, yeah, it's never. It's always done. It's always worked out for me. So I, I, I feel honored. And and the, the day. And I was always dedicated. Understand to this this series. Um, and yeah, understand. It's going to take me. I'm on plate 441, and yeah, I've been doing them for six six or seven years now. Um, yeah. Six years, at least six years now. Um, 
you know, it's going to take me maybe 15, 20 years to finish this thing. Wow. So I, I've got a long, long way to go yet. Um, and, and I was always dedicated to getting this done. Um, but when, uh, you know, I was uh, given the name by Calvin Grinnell, um, the elder from the, head, the MHA nation, the Manandan Hidatsa Rikara nation, um, something clicked in me. And it's like, now it's not about I'm dedicated to this thing. Like now I have, I cannot let these people down. I will not. These are, they were no longer coming in as strangers. And it's, it's, you know, how we have clubs are, you know, are, you know, you, you have clubs and we, ha you know, there's clubs yeah. and, and this is not a, when you're adopted into a tribe, this is not a club kind of thing, you know, like, or you have a special hand. I mean, they'll come in and I, they're no longer strangers. They're my brothers and sisters. And I feel okay. that. Yeah, it sounds like a family situation. It's like if a member of my family asked me to take their portrait, you would do it out of kind of family duty, wouldn't you? And that's the situation it, you're in now. It's like it's your family coming in to take photos of. And and they will be strangers and 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 my, my friends will come in and they will hug me and say, It's so nice to see you, brother. It's you know, and it's just it's just not I I can't. I can't overemphasize it enough. But with that, like you're saying there, John, there's this duty. I feel like this duty now. It's like, okay, this is game on. Um, mm -hmm. I, it just took everything to another level. When Cal, I mean, he called me up. He says I had. He just called me up on the phone. And he said, and he had been in my studio a couple of times, and he had known what I've done. And uh, he says, I got your name. I said, What are you talking about? He goes, Well, I have your name. I said, Calvin, what do you mean? He says, I have your Native American name, and I almost fell off my chair. And he said, I'd like to, um, you know, have a formal ceremony. And they came out and um, it's, uh, it, it's, the, it's the, the greatest honor of my life. I, I can say that, that there, I, nothing that ever has been awarded to me or given to me or um, in an honor kind of situation other than that. And um, now I just have to do my job. I have to let my, I have to, uh, I have to do, um, I have to put my brothers and sisters in the best light that I can. So what are you, um, what are you doing with the images? Are you put, like putting them in a book as you collect them? Um, or are, are, so they going, all, all, are you putting them in a gallery? All, all the original photographs are, um, all the original plates, the actual plates, no prints, the original works are donated free of charge to the State Historical Society of North Dakota. So they, um, they, they, they are, they're archiving the entire series there. And then um, what I do is I scan them, obviously, so that I have some kind of record of them. And then uh, I give uh, prints to all my sitters. So every sitter that comes in, um, they will get a signed um, print um, of the work that we did together. And then they get scans. I Every photograph I've ever given, so if, if if you were Native American came in, I would give you a scan and then you can use that scan however you want in your life. I mean, I, I don't consider it my work. I consider it our work. And so they can use the scans on however they want to use it. And my, my, my work is, uh, I mean, it's appeared all over the place. It's just, it's just amazing. Um, and so I, I just, it's just free at that point. It's just, um, um, I, I give that to them. And then um, I'm doing, I think Graham mentioned my, my first book, um, which is pretty much sold out. Um, right now for the, the thousand copies um, and then so every 250 plates so we're, the goal is a thousand Native American portraits every 250 plates I will do a book and I was my first book I was going to do all 
250 plates, um, scans of the plates in the book, and the book was going to cost like over $200. And I said, well, I can't do that. So um, I, I whittled it down to my favorite 50. So every, there'll be four volumes of books over the 20 year period. And um, everyone's name, all 250 plates will be labeled in the back and there's an index of everyone's plate. But then I picked my favorite 50 images. So um, there will be four volumes at the end of this. That's lovely. It's like quartets, the each quartets um, as you go along. And, and yeah, your, you just and your, kind of the move forward. The name that they gave you, I think, is beautiful. And it's it's so fitting as well, I think, for everything you're doing and your work. It suits oh. you. Perfect. Yeah, he, um, yeah, Shadowcatcher. Um, yeah, it, it's uh, it, it, historically Native Americans, I should explain this, um, Native Americans preferred to all photographers as shadow catchers. Mm. So this is how, that, that's how they described um, photographers with these, you know, these little wood boxes and, and you know, um, they described them as shadow catchers. And, and they really thought that, uh, you know, can you imagine, I can bring you into my studio in 2020 and show you this process from front to back and you will be amazed at it. I mean, I, I guarantee you that you will be in awe of what, how this how this image comes about and, and you guys are photographers you understand and you're in the modern 2020 right um can you imagine you being in 1852 and you know me going to standing rock uh yeah. reservation and then showing up with my little carton buggy and my little dark room and my little camera with this little thing on the end this lens and and then i go into this box and then i come out with this image of you i mean they they, they thought you these photographers were actually stealing their image yeah. um and in the documentary, Dakota Goodhouse, who is a historian and also a professor at United Tribes, he describes when I first took his photograph, um, and he was plate number two, by the way, for the series. Mm. He had the, he says in the, in the documentary, um, he, had the, um, he had the feeling that he needed to break the plate, that he, his first inclination was he needed to smash it because he thought that he he he, he 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 thought he knew about this history of the the stealing of the souls or you know or taking you know because you walk in and the chief you just took the chief's portrait and then you get your horse and buggy you drive out of town and you still got the chief's portrait with you yeah. you, you could see how they would could construe yeah. that is well you took part of our chief or you took what what is it that's in that sleeve yeah. mm-hmm. you know yeah yeah the chief's still here with us but you just walked away with the chief as well yeah. how is that possible and I think that's where some of this comes. Yeah. I think that's where some of this, um, these these thoughts come into play, and, and it's all just um, it's all just romantic. And particularly, I think though, particularly with the wet plate collodion, there is, and obviously not stealing anybody's soul, but there is something that, as you talked about earlier, about the fact that during the period of this image being made breaths are being drawn blood's being pumped it's um it's a much more revealing way of taking a picture than um through other mediums because you can plaster a smile on your face you can hold anything for a fraction of a second but when you're having to when you're staring at something for multiple seconds um something is going to come through there's kind of no way that more of you cannot come through that because you can't you can't be something you're not with that degree of certainty for that long, I don't think. So it's a very revealing process in some ways. And, and it also it speaks to the, you know, the fact that that's why 
most pictures are, you know, they're not people smiling and stuff like that because right. fleeting looks like that just don't work they don't i mean you look maniacal and 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 the fact is is that people did not smile for photographs until ph photography got faster it just it, it it just wasn't the case you know we you know there's people think that um oh they were depressed or they were hungry and that's why they're all gloom and doom and it had nothing to do with that these, these poor people were enduring like two minute exposure sometimes you never know depending on what the you know the environment and no, uh, no one very long two minutes can they no you can't smile for <laughs> 10 seconds and they there are i mean i've seen smiling wet plates not many historic but they, they can pull them off in broad daylight and but i, I have friends that have you know, sit or smile, um, but they're using flash and stuff like that. You're not, you're not, you're just looking like, you look like a maniac um, trying to, the, those, that, that smile is an instantaneous thing. And I always tell the students, um, and I, you know, you don't want to get me on this whole, whole smiling thing because it's so insincere, okay? And I don't mean to be this way, but I've thought about this a lot. Smiling for photographs is so insincere. I feel like we're just a bunch of monkeys. Someone <laughs> points a camera and a lens at your at your stupid mug, and you just have this stupid reflex of smiling for it. When you know, you could argue, is that how you feel? You know what I mean? Like Robin Williams. I mean, I he's you know one of the probably the funniest men of our generation, right? I mean, he was a com a, a comic of epic proportions. I have a feeling the moment, you know, the day that Robin Williams took his life, mm -hmm. I think if you had a camera and were down at breakfast with him before he took his life on that day, I don't mean to get so gloom, but I'm just, I'm, I'm being dramatic for a reason. If you pointed a camera at Robin Williams' face on that morning of his death, he probably would have smiled for you just out of habit. Yeah. I'm just feeling it. But is that how Robin Williams felt? It's not. So why every time that we have a camera pointed at our mugs, do we feel that we need to do this? And it just drives me insane. I tell the students, give me a sincere look. Think about something else. Um, you know, have a thought of have some intent with your portrait. There's no intent with a smile. I mean, it's just it's 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 clownish. And I'm just. And I, I've taken enough portraits that this is just my position and people can argue with me and I don't have any, that, that there's no problem with that, but smiling. And there is a, I have photographs of that digital photographers have taken of me smiling and laughing on a set and stuff. And those are beautiful and they're, 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 they're wonderful revealing photographs. I'm, I'm not, I'm talking about when you point the camera and then I have to smile for you, that kind of thing. It's just so, we're not a bunch of lemmings. Yeah. Do you think in some ways though that, because of the fact, as you said, you can't, a smile makes you look manic and because of the, the um, restrictions of the process you're using that you've also got a situation where you can only, not only because you've already mentioned that other people do have taken pictures of people smiling and what have you with wet plate clothing, but you mostly get pictures with a another certain look, uh, a, a, a more serious studied look on their face so in some ways th that's the default with that um you you're it, it's i know obviously it's not the same as the smile and that oh this is the automatic but it's another thing that it is i'm not going to say artificial because it's not but it makes everybody look very thoughtful and i've met a lot of human beings and not all of them were very very thoughtful <laughs> i think it makes everyone look insincere I, I just, but again, this is, I have to give you my slant, right? I mean, 
this is by slant. I just, just think, uh, uh, just uh, sure, there is places for smiles. I, I get that. I get in photography. There's a lot of places for smiles and emotions. I'm not. I get that. But point a camera at me, and then the photographer's, you know, smile or cheese. Um, I, I don't know. I think that's where it comes from, isn't it? Even from a young age, you're you're kind of taught. As soon as somebody says cheese, you smile, and it just becomes muscle memory. You know, it's just like bang. You, there you go. Do you know the Do you know the, um, the origination of that, or the you know the where that ground zero? One of the ground zeros for that is you know you've heard watch the birdie. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you know what I mean. Uh, yeah. Watch the birdie comes from there's a I have one here. It's right here. It's uh, from 1907 or something like that. Early 1900s. Um, it's a little brass bird whistle that the photographer fill the base up with some water and he have a tube that he'd blow air in to run into his mouth and he would blow on this and the bird would chirp and its little tail would move and its beak would go up and down and this beautiful bird sound comes out of this. It was a photographer's tool and what it was used for was to capture the child's attention for the long exposure. And so the, the photographer would have children there and he would blow this little whistle and get the and that's where Watch the Birdie came from. So it, 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 it harkens back to the, the evolution of some of these things that we do, but we, we do it mindlessly now. We don't do it. We don't have to do it anymore. Right. Because we're, we're not under these constraints of these long exposures. Mm -hmm. um, um, but th th that was the genesis of watch the birdie is a parlor trick that photographers use a little, it's a little, it's a little brass little bird that made noises. And that's where watch the birdie came from. And it was, and the reason why they used it is because of long exposures with children. That does sound, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I kind of wish that that was still part of photography. I'd, I'd quite like to have a little brass bird I could take around <laughs> know, with me. Right? That just sounds fun. You can find them. I'm going to get you one for Christmas, guys. <laughs> they're really, they're really fun. I mean, if you understand the story behind it, and there was a lot of them out there, but you can get, you can get really good historic examples of them. They're, they're absolutely fabulous. And I have one here to show the students and, and to drive home my point is that, you know, these f smiles weren't always here in photography. This whole cheesy smiles, um, you know, um, it, it wasn't do always you, part of photography. Do you think part of it is also that when people are thinking to the future, that when they look back at photos of themselves, they want to look back as if they were happy then, even if they weren't? Yes, it, I mean it could be it could be all those things, right? I mean, why? But what? But what? The, but the end game is it's a facade. Yeah. It, it, it's is it how you're feeling right this moment? It can't be because we can't all be smiling every moment a camera's pointed at us, and all of us smile when a camera's pointed at us. It's insane. Yeah, but like I said, though, the, the, the flip side of that is that everybody looks at pictures from the, the 1800s and assumes everyone was miserable then. So it's kind of. True, you know, it's, it's anyway. True. Um, uh, moving on because your, your Native American work, uh, one is fantastic. Um, the images that you've got uh, that, and that you shared, and this is the great thing you've shared your stuff so freely, it's wonderful, so people can see them very easily. Um, but it's fabulous though they are, it's easy to see those being uh, an important body of work, but one that is not widely seen by people but there's been a few things that have happened again i mean i think it's worth remembering this is only eight years not eight years that you've been doing wet plate clothing but eight years that you have been doing photography of 
any sort whatsoever. It's no time at all. Um, and yet you've got to where you are with doing this. And a couple of things have happened which have really helped draw people's attention towards you so that you can then really highlight the things that you're doing which might not get the broader attention that they deserve. Um, and the first one of these was uh, the the portrait that you made of Evander Holyfield, um, which uh, that's now in the Smithsonian, which is kind of a big deal, I understand. Yeah, we, you know, within three years of owning a camera, I got a plate in the Smithsonian. I mean, that's just stupid. Makes no sense. Makes no sense at all. But, um, you know, again, you know, um, the opportunity came and, uh, you know, it was it was something that I mean I I'm looking across my studio right now and my Evander Holyfield chair is sitting there. There's this chair that my first chair in my studio um, has a, a label on it. Evander Holyfield sat here on this this given date, and um, it was uh, Virgil Hill was a photographer from North. I'm not a photographer, a boxer from North Dakota. He had come in. I spent four hours with him. He just fell in love with the process, and he told me, "I'm going to get the champ in here. This is he needs to see this." And I said. I said bullshit, and um, he shook my hand, and and um, the call came in on a Saturday when I was at my daughter's volleyball game, and um, the and I've said I've said this story many times. Um, the voice said the, the champ will give you an hour if you can pick him up at the hotel in ten minutes, and I said I'll be there in eight. And I pulled up to the hotel, and Holyfield came walking out, four-time heavyweight champion of the world. Can you about imagine that the, the studios, the photography studios, this man's been in? Right? I'm not taking him into this this my my natural light studio here. I'm taking him into a corner of a warehouse <laughs> with uh, some beakers and and some trays. And I mean, I can't imagine what he was thinking. And um, he trusted me, and I had one hour with him, and and I did my best uh, with the hour that that I had. And it was just. Um, but then for the Smithsonian to take up that portrait, it was just, um, um, it was it's such a huge honor. You just, you just can't take these things for granted. Um, and you can't script them and they're never expected. Um, but when they happen, you just have to feel very fortunate, um, to be, you know, to be put in that position. Yeah. It's an amazing portrait. Did you get in touch with them and say, hey, I've got this image, would you be interested? Or were they made aware of it through, because obviously you already had connections locally. How did that come to happen? They were doing, um, I got an email from them. They were doing a, uh, a new installation of uh, African-Americans. Um, and they were looking for portraits of African-Americans to have, to add to their portrait gallery and to be part of this exhibit or this this new installation so there's this african-american um series or whatever it is a, a new wing of their of the smithsonian or something that they were going to put on this display of, of uh, famous african-americans and and it was that that uh, knocked down the doors of the smithsonian for me yeah um before we come on to the next uh image that i think has is been very important for you in the last eight years as well and especially last year um but we've referred to several times the fact that there is a documentary about you and your work um and things with this features heavily in it i think it's worth drawing people's attention to it now um because it's a really good documentary it's it's called thank you Bolkowicz, um so it's and it's uh, actually for those of us in the uk it's actually on Amazon Prime right now. So if you have Amazon Prime, mm. you can just go and watch it. Uh, it's just under an hour long. It's great if you've got any interest in 
any of the stuff we've been talking about. It's really well done. It's a fabulously made documentary, even though I know from um, listening to the lens, uh, not lens, it's the large format photography podcast, you were talking on there about the fact that this was done, that you were approached to do this and it was done with no money and just hard Zero work and enthusiasm. And, um, but it's great. It's come out fantastically. Um, and it features other things that we'll come on to later. But um, one of the other really important events that has happened to you is, as we've mentioned before, this opportunity that you had to take Greta Thunberg's picture last year, um, which blew up hugely. Um, it, I mean, I don't know. Crazy, you, crazy. How many millions of people have now seen that image? Um, how did that come about? Well, um, you remember the trust and stuff that I said with my my Native American friend uh, brothers and sisters. Um, so I heard Greta was coming uh, to North Dakota. It was just I don't know if it was in the news or someone. It was it, it were, there was there was rumors that Greta Thunberg is coming to North Dakota, and and so my email just blew up, and and, and social media just blew up. Everyone said, Shane, you have to get Greta. You have to get Greta. You have to get Greta. And I'm like. How in the hell am I going to get Greta? I don't. I don't know Greta. I don't know her family. I don't know her camp. I don't. You know how am I going to? How am I going to get in touch with her to get her portrait? And I'm sure she's a rather busy young lady, right? Like, how am I going to get this? It's not like I just can take her. You know, take my camera and get her for two seconds and get her. You know, um, next to a building or something and take her portrait. It wasn't that. That's not what I can. This is more involved, you guys. So everyone kept saying that. They kept saying that. It got to the nauseam and um then uh the next thing i heard is that greta's going to standing rock to visit the children of the standing rock nation um and then i thought hold on a second i have an inn down at down at standing rock i i the, the people down there know me and um so i made one phone call to jen jewett a, a friend of mine uh that had been in and had i had her portrait taken her mother's portrait some of her family members portraits and i called jen and i said jen greta's coming she goes yep i know i said um i knew that i wasn't going to get her i knew that it was she said that she's really time time crunched and i said well i'll bring my camera and my darkroom to standing rock if you can give me 15 minutes famous last words i mean 15 minutes for a portrait of you know of, of this potential magnitude in this process, that's that's just that's that's stupid talk. I mean that's that's an insane that's an insane thing to say. But I knew if I if I asked for anything more than fifteen minutes, I they would probably if I said I need Greta for an hour, I knew it wasn't going to happen, right? So I had to lie, cheat, and steal, and just say I can do it in fifteen minutes. Um, and uh, I got a call back like four hours later, and and the the people of Standing Rock gave up 15 minutes of their time with Greta for me so that I could do this. And um, the, the moment uh, I got to meet Greta, uh, it was right immediately told to me that she only has time for one portrait. And my heart sank. It's like, okay, um, I don't have, I'm, I'm here in the middle of a field. I haven't done a test shot today yet. Um, I don't know what F-stop, I don't know anything. It's gonna all just be gut check. You're gonna guess F8 three seconds. You're just gonna guess. It could have, I could have been overexposed and I could have been underexposed. I had no idea. And um, so I took that first photograph of Greta. It's called Simply Greta, which is her. I, I wanted to kind of show some nature. So if you look at that portrait, 
um, you'll see that I pushed her, I put this chair way back into a pine tree and to try to, you know, cause everything's out of the depth of field is so shallow. You can barely see it, but it has the, re you can feel like nature is the pine tree behind her. So that's my backdrop. So Greta was just sitting in a chair, pushed completely back. The, the bristles of the pine tree were touching her back and everything. I pushed her back as far as I could into this pine tree. And I took that first photograph and I thought that was the only one I was going to have. Um, and then the plate came to life and uh it was a collective woe from her dad and her her herself and th there was a professional photographer with her as well i should say that very nice gentleman from um from over there and and i looked up at her dad i took that um i took that uh opportunity to i looked up but at that moment i said can i do another and he looked down at me he said absolutely and that's when i got to do standing for us all which became this um probably the most viewed modern day web plate of all time with, I mean, I don't even think there's anything even close. I mean, she shared it again just uh, 10 days ago and it had another like seven or 50,000 views and likes. And the initial, the initial views and likes were well over 2.3, 2.4 million um, people had shared and liked that, that portrait on social media. So the, the image has gotten well over 3 million views. Um, which is just it's crazy and this and it's in the library of congress now right yeah so when um i took those two portraits of her the one of the one things i wanted to make sure that i explained to her dad um i promised him that i would not keep the works that i would he he shook my hand i i right before they left so i only had 20 minutes i had 15 minutes is all they gave me but i got my extra five so i got that second plate and then um i asked i shook his hand and i said what can i do for greta and then he said to me, he says, you've already done what you can do for Greta. You've taken these two beautiful portraits of my daughter. He says, now you can do what you can do for us is just share them with the world. And at that moment, I decided that I, I promised him that I will find proper archives uh, for these plates, that I would not keep them to myself, that they would be donated free of charge to proper archives. So um, the Library of Congress took uh, standing for us all which is her standing in that field. And then the, the first portrait I talked about, Greta, went to the Nordiska Museum in her home country. So both plates found homes relatively quickly. I mean, I, I think I, I found homes for them within three months. Um, and um, I, he just text messaged me last week. So Greta, there was, um, there's an installation in a, a museum, a big 10 foot tall standing for us all that they put in one of the museums there in her home country of Sweden. and. Uh, so I, it was Saturday, this is just last Saturday, and I'm sitting there and this text comes across to me and here's a picture of Greta standing in front of my installation in Sweden. So her and her dad got in a car and drove over there and took this picture for me um, to show me that she, uh, she actually made it to see the installation while it was up. And it was just, it was, we had this nice conversation. So they keep in touch with me to this day. So, it, and again, it's just that, you know, gaining that trust and we only had that 20 minutes together. They didn't know me from Adam. Um, and now we have, there was, uh, you know, my Greta Thunberg, I don't know if you want to get into the controversy around my work, um, but my, my Greta Thunberg mural that was going to be put in Bismarck, it was chased out of here and they had ached my, my, um, my Lady Liberty piece and, um, and then it went to Fargo and then another installation went to New York, um, another one went to Pennsylvania and one's down at Standing Rock. So there's four big large Greta standing for us all installed, they're about 10 feet tall. Um, permanent installations 
um, around the country. So the one portrait that got, you know, I, I tried to get Greta installed here in Bismarck and, and all hell broke loose. And um, they actually egged my liberty trudges through a justice piece that was already installed here in Bismarck. And, uh, and then, so Fargo decided they were gonna take uh, standing for us all. They came to my, my, they were my saviors within, within a couple of hours of me being chased out of Bismarck, which is my hometown, by the way. I mean, it made it into this, this whole controversy. I think there was like 165 national and international newspaper articles picked up on this, this, this controversy about my work that, that Greta was chased out of Bismarck. Um, and I mean, it made it to her home country, made it to your guys' country. It was in the UK's papers too. Uh, and then um, she went to Fargo. We installed her in Fargo, and within weeks of Fargo, we had a video camera of some guy with a bunch of eggs egging, egging Greta in Fargo. And then, for whatever reason, when they egged my work here in Bismarck, it didn't destroy the the actual metal print, but in Fargo, it destroyed it. So we had to take Greta down in Fargo, have her remade, and then put it back up again. It's. I suppose it's one of those things, isn't it, that it, having your work um, uh, uh, vandalized, attacked like that. On one hand, it's got to be upsetting, but on the other hand, it, it, that work has moved people, and it's shown that it is. If the work wasn't important, and it, it, what you were doing with it wasn't important, it wouldn't have elicited that kind of response. And um, so, I, 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 it's not the response you want, but. Well, the two points, I mean, if it's personal, um, when they um, Liberty trudges through injustice is one of the big collaborations and that's installed downtown. That's the one that they egged here in Bismarck. If you look um, in the newspaper articles, you'll see that they egged my, my son's face, Grayson, he's, he was 14 at the time, and my daughter's face um, as well. So the eggs just weren't on my work. They were actually at my children. Um, but my, my point to that all is that these idiots they didn't. They weren't egging my work, um, Graham. It's that it wasn't my work. I mean, my work was, you know, the work is at the Library of Congress. Um, yeah. You know, this is just a representation of my work. So, you know, it, it's it's my way of pushing back. Is like you guys, they they've done. They did nothing but um, um, elevate the work uh, and the attention brought to the work. I mean, these guys, you could not have hired better. PR people. <laughs> you 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 could have you could have said, okay, I'm going to give you ten thousand dollars to promote Greta Thunberg. What's your best mode of promoting this the, this wet plate work? And the answer would have been, well, we'll egg it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's like you couldn't. These guys they thought they were har harming me, and I, I, sure it it hurt at the at the time. Um, uh, but then I put it into perspective that this isn't my work. This is just a representation of my work. And it, it doesn't, you know, the work is still not harmed. And, um, but, you know, they, they had no idea that they were, they were doing, they were elevating this work um, to a level that it never, you know, it never would have gotten the, the, the views that it, that it did. And, and people wouldn't know of, of some of my work. Um, so, you know, I, I, I I kiddingly like want to say thank you to these these hateful people because they really um, they really did me a, a a big favor. It just did not. I understand it didn't feel like a favor at the time. I can't imagine it did. Um, your your work, your personal work, uh, generally speaking, over the last eight years, 
it's, it's as you said, it's all been portraiture or almost entirely been portraiture, and uh, a lot of it is drawing inspiration from art and from literature and so on. And generally speaking, you I wouldn't necessarily avoid it, but it hasn't been you haven't been moved by stuff that's going on around you, uh, although there is a very noticeable, uh, notable exception from that from 2016, uh, 2017, yeah. was it? Um, uh, yeah. your, your image, POTUS Revealed, which um, is quite a powerful image, which I will let you describe because I don't feel like I do, I'll do it justice. So do you want to describe that picture for us? Well, POTUS Revealed um, was my first controversial work. I lost 800, uh, 800 followers that day on social media, which at the time seemed like a lot, but um, mm. you know, it doesn't, it's, no big, it's no big deal. So um, that was nothing more, that image, and people, if you don't know the story, um, that was nothing more than me standing up for my Native American brothers and sisters. Um, Trump got elected. I was the first person, I could say this very honestly, I was the first person to say, well, the, 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 the public elected him and we need to give him a chance. I said that. I mean, I was the first one to say, we got to see what this guy can do now. I mean, the, you know, the election, it was went, went uh, you know, his way and, and we got to give him the respect that that, that office deserves. Within, um, it was within four days of that, um, he, one of his first executive orders, if not his first executive order. So my friends were fighting down at the Dakota Access Pipeline, not fighting physically, but um, it was a, a spiritual fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline um, for for a couple of years prior to that, where they were, you know, sleeping out on the plains um, and and protesting um, uh, nonviolently protesting. We should say that not one Native American ever had any kind of weapon in their hand at all during the entire the entire controversy. Um, so the, we, they had pushed back the Dakota Access Pipeline that was going, they were worried that it was going to taint their water and they didn't want it across uh, what used to be their land. And um, I was down there in the early days and, and they had won. They, they, the courts had ruled that the Dakota Access Pipeline needs to have an environmental impact study. And so my Native American friends celebrated. It was like, we, we got it, but at least we're going to get the study and they're going to be have to prove to us that this is not going to affect our water. So all this, all these months, and you're talking in the middle of winter and, and the police were shooting. I had Native Americans, I had a lady come in who had lost her eye to being shot with a tear gas tank canister and uh, people that were hurt. I mean, they were coming in from the front lines into my studio. So one one day they were down there and the next day they're in my studio. So I was, I was hearing these stories, uh, these firsthand stories. Florice Whitebull, my, my sister, um, she was, uh, they wrote a, on her forearm, I'm getting off track here, but they wrote, um, she came into my studio and she says, I need a magic marker, a permanent marker. I said, what for? She goes, I have to write a number on my forearm. I said, what's that all about? She goes, this is the number that the, the sheriff's office wrote on my forearm before they put, before they put me uh, to sleep at a dog kennel overnight in the, in the basement of the, the sheriff's department. This is, I mean, they ran out of room. So instead of sending these nonviolent people, just like citing them and saying, oh, here's your court date. They wanted to make a point and they caged them and they ran out of enough. They ran out of, they were arresting so many people. They ran out of cells, jail cells. So they erected dog kennels in the parking structure underneath the sheriff's department and housed Native Americans with serial numbers written on their arms. She spent the night this way. Okay, so this is why POTUS... I, I, I've taken this long route, but yeah, I, I got to tell the whole story. I mean, this is why POTUS Revealed was made, because the fourth day of being a president, 
he came in with an executive order and bypassed the environmental impact study. And my friends lost out. All that work that they did was with the scratch of a pen overturned. They were shot with water cannons with 20 degree weather below freezing with water cannons. I mean, they were injured. Hundreds of Native Americans went to the emergency room over that year and a half. Not one, not one police officer ever had any sort of injury whatsoever, not even a paper cut. And hundreds of Native Americans went to the emergency room. And many of those Native Americans came through my studio during that time. So when President of the United States, newly elected, did an executive order and pushed through the Dakota Access Pipeline against my friends, I had no fucking choice but to stand up. And I came up with POTUS Revealed. I contacted my very good friend, Kevin Tengerstall, that had been in my studio for portraits before. He had the, the proper build. Um, and we got a, we got a um, if, if your listeners can look, if they want to look it up, um, it's called POTUS. If you look up POTUS Revealed wet plate, you'll see it right away. Um, you will see that um, he had a Donald Trump mask on. We put an Adolf Hitler mustache on the Donald Trump mask. Um, we put um, a skull with a Native American flag um, standing up behind it, representing what he had done to my Native American friends symbolically. Um, we put oil spilled all over his chest that, that, that is chocolate syrup um, on his chest, but it, it appears to be oil. I got large dollar bills at his table. We got coins on the table. He's wearing, you know, I had to address the sexual things that we've, we've heard about him against women and stuff like that. So I, I put pantyhose on him and tore the pantyhose up, uh, these, these knit stockings. And, um, we put a crown on his head and you notice the crown is, I'm trying to give you some of the, 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 um, the symbolism, the crown is tilted to one side, like Kitty Wampus on his head, like a crown that does not belong to him. Um, and yeah, so the, the image speaks for itself, but but that that's where I, I had no choice. And it was nothing more than coming to my friend's aid because I know if I got into trouble here, my studio or, or some of my family got into trouble, they would come to my aid, so. It's a really striking picture and it certainly doesn't pull any punches, um, but it is in the context of the other stuff you were doing, it's quite, you that wasn't generally what you were doing at the time. You didn't, your pictures were not reflective of what was going on around you at that time in general. Um, but it's noticeable looking at the work that you've been shooting this year, that the reality of 2020 is mixing or being brought into your work in, I think, quite a fabulous way because your your pictures are still drawing on those same touchstones that they have done of um, of uh, pre-Raphaelite art, of art in general, paintings um, and literature. Um, but you're bringing those into and then bringing in obviously particularly about covid and everything that's been going on with that to make some really striking and, and memorable images this year um it, it was is this an evolution a new direction or just a response you couldn't avoid from this year i i just think i i i figured out once i got my voice like not everyone gets a voice but now i i believe i have a voice um, and with that voice, I have a duty with that voice. And I don't, um, I, not like I intended to be political for any reason. Um, for instance, I, 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 I consider my work, I, I, I have a quote on my website, um, art can be used as a weapon for change. 
and artists can wield this weapon however they want. And like, for instance, when they ate my, my, children's, uh, my children's mural downtown, what did I do the following weekend? I brought my two daughters, Olivia and Molly, and my younger two came down to the studio and I made the, unanim the anonymous, anonymous egging of an artist. And I told my daughters, throw these eggs at my head. And, you know, by, by, you know they must have thought, what, what the hot, what are you talking about? I brought these eggs down. I, they cracked these. I let my two youngest daughters, because I thought they'd get a kick out of it, crack these eggs over my head. And I held these eggshells in my hands. And I made the anonymous egging of an artist to push back against what they did to my work. And, and that became like the poster for the, the Fargo Film Festival and everything. And it's essentially just egg yolks and, and eggs cracked on my head and, and I'm holding eggs. But my daughters were involved in that. And I took this self-portrait with it being egged. And it was just, um, yeah, it's, it's a voice that I've been given. Uh, I've not only been given it by my Native American friends, I've been given it by other people that, that like my work. Um, and um, with that, I, I've been chastised on some of the social media, like some of the Facebook groups. Someone said to me, and more than once, it said, um, politics, this is the quote, politics has no place, no, for, um, politics has no place in photography. <laughs> That's what, this, that's what this guy said to me. That's what this guy said to me. And there was, I mean, I, I'm not kidding you guys. There was guys defending this. I mean, we're talking 75, 150 comments saying, yeah, I mean, this, you know, photography shouldn't be used in this manner. And I'm like, what in the, f I'm going to say it. I'm sorry. You're going to have, you're going to, here, I'm Graham. I'm going to, you mark this moment. What in the fuck are you talking about? What in the fuck are you talking about? I, I I completely agree. Like I was chatting to um, another photographer recently, and he was saying that he feels it's our job as artists to rebel and question the status quo and get that out mm. in our art, basically to to help educate and inform people about our views and the conflict and everything. And I think you're doing that, and I think it's it's a very powerful medium that you're using to do that because of partly because of the process involved as well. I think that really comes through in the images and it gives it and, that extra weight. And, and I don't think it's for everyone. It's not like you're required to, you know what I mean? Like to take a stance. I just, uh, you know, I, I just feel that. So I'm going to, and I, I, it's not like I would put another artist down if they, if they don't, if they never take some kind of political stance. I don't, I don't, I don't consider myself a political artist. I just find myself doing what I feel like I have to do. I want to be the, I want to be an artist that my children can look back at and and respect and and say, Dad, at least Dad stood up for something, or at least Dad did this, right? Like, you know, um, why did we crack eggs on Dad's head when we were little girls? Well, this is why we, you know, they don't understand the story now, but they will understand it. So, do do we not, as parents? I don't know of you, um, if any of you have children, but you know, don't don't we want to um, don't we want to leave the world a better place than we found it? It's and, quite, and, I think I think this comes back to what you're saying about smiling in photos because I think you can make art that is the equivalent of a smile. You know, it's like mm -hmm. it's very kind of easily accessible. It's kind of what people want to see. But really, what you're thinking and what you want to create is the sincere look, and that's what you want to put out to the world and people to remember you by. It's sincerity and the intent. And that's what I think, you know, people ask me, why do you think people are drawn to your image, images? And I think because there's a lot of intent. I will, 
I will spend eight hours in my studio, I'll make four plates. I mean, I will compose a shot for an hour and a half, one plate. I'll take that one plate and if I get it, that's it, move on. But I'll, I'll, I'll spend two hours here on one shot. And, and I, I tell the, the student, you know, when I went to, down to shoot Greta, I had, I want to say I had five pieces of clean glass. Let's not say, for instance, I went down to Greta and they said, oh, Shane, we are, our, you know, our, our schedule cleared up. You can have Greta for four hours. I still only had five exposures. I mean, who goes down to shoot Greta Thunberg with only five exposures in your camera? You're, you're, you're insane. But that's what I'm up against all the time. So I could have only shot five. I only had chemicals and glass for five portraits. And I went, I, you know, confidently loaded up my car, got everything in there and you show up there and that's all you have. I mean, and I think it's a good, um, and I tell the students it's, and I keep referring back to the students cause I, I, I'm trying to instill something in them. I'm trying to, I'm trying to inspire them or I'm trying to just like move them some way. I'd say, you know, the best thing you can do for yourself is sometimes limit your exposures. Tell yourself you're only going to take five pictures this afternoon. I happen to think that those five pictures that you take, instead of taking 500, with the intent, going back to that word, the intent of that photograph, what is your intent right now? If we spend more time with the intent, I think, and I, I may be wrong, but I, I think something better may come of it. And I, you, guys, you guys could tell me if I'm bullshitting, you know, if I'm bullshitting. I, I have to say that I think, personally, I think the pictures that you produced this year, I mean, the, the isolation, the COVID-19 isolation series that you've got um, on your website from this year, I think they're some of my favorite pictures that you've done. I mean, uh, what I love about your website is the fact that um, you've got year by year by year all of your pictures. So, so you can see that evolution from where you started in 2012 to where you are now. And and it, it is an evolution and and... Especially when you, you know, I was going through year by year, and then you go from now and go back, and of course, there's a huge difference. I mean, you've gone from being somebody who's completely new to it to being a confident, assured artist um, who is making incredible work. And um, uh, yeah, and I, I, you know, I really hope that that this these things where you're, it feels like you're putting more of yourself not well sometimes literally into the pictures but also just in general into them i think it's fantastic like i said the, the girl with the virus um or the the isolation series there's a f fantastic one which isn't well i guess it's not officially labeled as being part of that series but the maskless infusion down the bottom um yeah that's part of it too that's part of that yeah. all all nine plates including that one and the flags that they all i just hand delivered them to the plains art museum in fargo north dakota just two days ago yeah. Um, I personally, they're taking them into their permanent collection. But people have said, well, why don't you remove those old images from your site? You know what I mean? Like, you know, conventional wisdom says, well, shit, maybe I should get rid of some of that old, you know, some of my first work. But not for me, because it's two, point, two points for me, okay? Leaving those old images out there and showing the progression. Hopefully there's a progression. I don't, you have to tell me that there's a progression. But um, one is, is that there's many times a web plate, friend of mine that's just getting started or someone that's just getting started they'll they'll make some snide comment as oh i'll never be as good as you or look at this is just this is just crap what i did but i i'm trying for play for the first time and then i will point them back to my first because they know only know me as now right they only see my work now 
and, and maybe they have some respect for it or they like it or whatever. And I'll show them where I started. And then all of a sudden that it clicks for them is that, oh, wow, if that's what Shane used to look like, damn, I actually look better than Shades of Initial Work. And, and I like that. Um, and the second point of that is why I leave those old images out there is that I don't want to, I want to remind myself, I want to remember where I came from. Like I, you know, I want to remember my humble beginnings. I, there, why would I be ashamed or not want to show, you know, I, I show that, I show that old work off all the time. And it's always with, like with a little bit of a chuckle because it's like, boy, I don't, what were you thinking back then, Shane? But it is what it is. I mean, I'm, it's history, right? I, I can't change it. It, they, the images happened and at the time I, I thought they were I was doing my best work at that time but the more work that I do the less I like my work which for me is reassuring and I've said that before is that the more I do the less I like and and um, um, for me that, that that's reassuring but I I don't shy away from my old work I don't hide my old work it's um, it's out there for anyone to see you can look at plate number one you can look at look at plate number three of my mom I mean what a disaster that plate is I mean what a disaster <laughs> I mean, I mean, nobody could have technically poured or sensitized or exposed a plate worse than that plate. I am, I, I mean, I'm the world champion of poorly done plates at that level of my career, of this creative path. But that's the thing. It's a path, right? So I can look back over my shoulder and see what's behind me. But, you know, and I'm not going to make these huge leaps and bounds. I, I've realized this now that I'm, you know, I made those large, huge leaps and bounds over this last eight years. And now the, the little leaps and bounds are just like minuscule little baby steps that, you know, they're, they're harder to, they're harder to discern. They're harder to see these little baby steps in improvement. If, if it is improving, maybe I'm getting worse. I have no idea. I'm, I'm just going to sure. make I'm no. just, I, I, no, seriously. I mean, I'm too close to my work to tell you if it's any good. Really uh, well, as somebody at a, a safe <laughs> distance, I'm going to say, no, I, you're definitely getting better. <laughs> I'm going to put, stick my neck out and say, definitely getting well, better. For at least to kind, my taste. Right. You're, um, you're kind. Um, so what, you, you know, you, you can look back, but looking forward, where where do you want to go? You, where, what, I mean, we haven't even touched on it. You know, God, there's so much that we could talk about, but the fact that you do these um, annual huge collaborative pieces of work um that come together and you make these amazing pictures that involve you know i think was it 52 people involved with um one of them? we're going to do the plague next uh july you guys can come in we're going to do the plague over a hundred i'm over a hundred um volunteers at this point wow it's so, based off a a, a, four, a 15th century painting we're talking boats and plague masks and skeletons, dead bodies and carts and horses. And I, I, you know, I don't know how much of that we're going to get in there, but we're going to get a lot of it in there and we're going to address the plague. So um, these big, large collaborations, I mean, they, they take eight months, usually eight months. I'm just going to get started now in, in December. I'm going to start posting and getting everyone on the list. And, and we've already had a meeting. I've already met with my director and I already met with my costume lady. I already met with my carpenter. Um, and we're, we are already think we have a location and it, we're over the next nine months, we will be planning this next shoot. And all this converges in this one little area, all these people, all the, the makeup, hair, everything, everyone's got costumes and then set design. It all comes together with zero budget for no other reason than to create together. 
and everyone's name gets put on the back of the plate and it goes up to the historical society. And there's just been, there's been, you know, four of them so far. So we had Murderer's Gulch. We had the capsizing of humanity based off the raft of the Medusa at the remove. We had Liberty trudges through injustice based off Liberty leading the people. Um, you know, these are, these are um, big, large collaborations that we've uh, put together and it's, it's, they're fun. They're like movie sets. And, and, if, and anyone who's watching wants to watch the documentary and if they're outside of the UK, you can get it in Vimeo. So if you're if you can't find it on Amazon, you can get the, the documentary on Vimeo. But you'll see um, them on the set of Liberty Trudges Through Injustice. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it's uh, game on when that day comes around. Graham, you, you're going to have to censor this as well, because when I saw that frame being created i just thought it was fucking incredible like <laughs> like the final image is phenomenal yeah, but the the process of it i was just yeah. enthralled by and really inspirational and then to see the image appearing was just like oh my god you got it <laughs> oh my I, I love the bit where shane was running out going life plate life plate <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It's so funny that, you know, I watched and I've watched it a couple of times, but I, my first, I never, I, we mean to say this up front about the documentary. If anyone, if you want, rented my documentary and it's like $5.95, I think it's free for you guys right now. But if, if anyone supports the documentary, I don't, I, I don't get any money from this at all. I had nothing to do with the documentary whatsoever. I mean, I did not even see it until it was in the can, you guys. It wasn't, I, there was no prompting. It was just them following me around, my, my two friends. Uh, Greg and Chelsea followed me around for you know a year and a half. It was it's all so this is their work and it just happens to be about me. But I always I always have to shout that hey this isn't I didn't it's not like I commissioned this documentary about me. This is just two people that were inspired by my work thought that I would have a cool story and they just went with it with zero budget. So this is their work um, has nothing really to do with me and um, I'm just proud of them um, for their first documentary. I think they just. You know, zero budget. It's just spectacular. But the, right. but then those you know the, those large collaborations you're talking about there, John, too, that you 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 got that feeling from. That's zero budget, but there was no money. Nobody got paid anything. I didn't get paid. Nobody got paid. Never made any money off selling prints. Or it was no budget at all for nothing. Everything people brought, and it was just for the love of creating together. And when you do that, it's guys. You just how, how can you how can you beat it? It does look like a lot of fun. It really does. And as you said, the end results are amazing. Do you think that um, next year when you do the plague, is is your plan to, uh, as because it, the past ones you've done have been fantastic, uh, but they've been very representative of the pictures that you are trying to recreate. Do you think you might be bringing in, as you have with the um, isolation series this time, do you plan on bringing in, elements that speak to where we are now into the picture Do, uh, will there be things which will be um tie, tie it to, to because you, know, you could look at the pictures that you've made uh, in the past and go oh these could be from 1900 will 2020 be in evidence in the plague image well as as a true collaboration and me being just one of the collaborators i don't have your answer because i you know um even the content in the actual painting that we're you know it's it's when you're when you're when you're dealing with people that aren't real actors and stuff like that i mean it's always it's i've always found it good or even like when sitters come in it's always good if you have an idea about what you want to do 
show them something visually to give them like to inspire them so that you, that, you know I find something but uh, Merrick uh, Doyce my my director I, this this is the fourth year with me this fourth time that we've done this and it was like Merrick where do you want to do this time and he says Shane we have to address the plague so he says look at this painting and that's what we're uh, we're basing it off of and so I don't this isn't my decision um, it's going to be our decision and if he wants to incorporate um, whatever he wants to incorporate I'm going to be up for it I mean we we've never stepped on each other's toes and and the work speaks for itself and but we have this close he gets to direct and and we talk about a lot of the concepts but he's moving all the people around I I've got my hands I mean you see in the documentary if you watched it I have my hands full just managing the camera and getting the angle and and, and pulling that off um it's so rewarding to like relinquish um the composition and some of the other things to someone else and just let them go with it you know and just trust them he trusts me i trust him and um so i don't really have your answer um, merrick's gonna have a lot to say and 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 people that show up on that day they're gonna we're gonna have two meetings probably where we all get together and people are we're gonna merrick and i will ask does anyone have any input is there something you'd like to try is there something any other ideas and everyone's just gonna toss it out there and then we just we run with it. So I don't, on these um, large collaborations, I don't have an answer yet because I don't know really what I'm going to be doing on that day. I have an idea and we will have, I mean, you can't pull it off without having it concrete what you think you're going to do, but um, we mix it up. You, you never know where we're going to go with it. And, and it, it's not just about what I want to do. It's about what the team wants to do. And I, as a team member, and I'm no more important than any of the other team members in the, in, in the process. Mm. And for your own personal stuff, do you have anything that you're planning on any any particular direction that you're planning on going at home or in your in your own studio over the next twelve months? Well, I'm booked about seven months out for my Friday sessions. So um, to let your listeners know, I, I I run an online company Monday through Thursday, and then Friday is my creative day. So I only create on Fridays. I'm actually in studio the whole day. Is I get up seven a.m. in studio till five in the afternoon. Um, that's my creative day. So I'm booked out for seven months as of right now for my Friday sessions. So um, what I, my next big thing that I'm, I'm focused on is to finish the 60 more portraits for my Native American series and, and get on volume two. So once I get to that 500, then I have everything in the can and then I can start whittling. Um, you know, getting down on my 50 and then we got to start working on the book. And I, I got a Ernie LaPointe, the great grandson of Sealing Bull, as we talked, my, my very good friend, he's going to write um, words in the front of the book. And then, um, you know, uh, I, I want to get volume two. People are asking me for volume two now. Um, so I really want to get volume two out in 2021. So I, I got 16 more portraits, um, which doesn't seem like a lot, but it's, trust me, it's, it's, um, it's grueling sometimes. Um, trying to stay on that on, on a, some kind of pace that's going to get me there because um, I always feel like I don't have enough time. Like I, I've, and maybe again, it's this oncology nurse in me and this, this, I'm 51 years old now. And yeah, you, you know, people, oh, you're still young and you got, you know, you got another 30 years. Who knows how much I got? I, I have no idea. So um, there is a little bit of um, urgency uh, for me to continue to, to plod towards this goal of a thousand plates. I, I you know, um, I think in the documentary when I did my speech, you'll see if, um, if fate does not break my stride, I, I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to achieve this. So that's that's kind of where I'm at. And um, so, but in order to do that, I have to be dedicated to 
you know, capturing um, these these Native American portraits, and um, um, that's that's what I'm going to focus on right now. It's been a pretty incredible eight year journey, really, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's you can't you can't script it. You can't um, you couldn't have imagined it. Um, I was just taking portraits in my back warehouse of my family. I had no idea that anyone would ever show any interest in anything that I was doing. Um, and it wasn't the intent. It wasn't like, oh, this master plan of, oh, I'm going to do this and that. And it's just, um, it's just all kind of fallen in my lap. So I just, uh, I feel grateful. I feel grateful to people like yourselves that, that believe in my work or can appreciate my work and think that um, it's, it's, uh, it's worth noting. Um, and um, I just want to, I just want more time. I just, I wish my dad would have been a photographer. You know, I wish he could have handed me a camera when I was 10 or something. Um, I, I feel that sometimes is that I wish I could have got started much earlier in my life. You know, I know people that are my age that have been shooting photos for 35 years already, you know, and I, I just did not have that. So I, I feel like I'm playing catch up a little bit and, um, um, we'll see. I don't, um, we'll see. We'll see. Do you think, do you think, do you think you were ready for this before you, before it happened? If somebody, if you'd seen that picture, that that picture of a motorbike, five years earlier, ten years earlier, do you think it would have had the effect it had? No, because I, 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 you had asked me earlier if I was, was I searching? I was, I was definitely searching. I wasn't searching for a, a creative outlet. I was searching for the answers to life. I, I reading books. I was, I bought a telescope. I was looking at the stars. Um, I was looking at the planets. I was understood the universe. I was reading books about the universe. I, I was reading philosophy. Um, um, I was reading mythology. Uh, I was, I was looking into physics and, and string theory and, and all these crazy, I mean, during this period, I mean, these were, I was just, I felt like I had been successful enough in my business life and that I was killing myself in my business life. And that if I did not find photography, I don't know that I could, I would have had the legs that I do in the, in my business. It's been, you know, we're going on 23 years starting here this month. And um, I think I would have, I was burnt out. I was, I needed something. So the, the answer to your question is I, I was so focused on money back before then. I mean, I would just wanted to be success. I always thought that my legacy would be my business somehow, which is such a shallow um shallow thought now in retrospect me looking back and being critical of myself um but that's all i knew you know I, I knew that i was good at it right that i was successful that i started this little startup company with 50 bucks in my mom's basement and, and we you know we turned into the largest online company in the state of north dakota i mean i i you know i was good at it but that's there was no substance there was no, you know, you you mentioned the Porsche and stuff like that. It's like that was a that was a creative outlet for me too. Three years of restoring this car, uh, Bill Hamilton, the guy that did it, he says, Shane, I've never had in my thirty some years of restoring the same vehicle. I've never had anyone as involved. You were meticulous about every little detail. But I think it was that creativity that I was trying. I was putting that into the car. It just wasn't. It just wasn't. It just didn't sustain me. Hmm. It just didn't sustain me. I didn't find any. It sure in the hell wasn't the end game 
I sure didn't answer, you know what I mean? Yeah, it was my dad's dream to have a Porsche and, and oh, I had to go to some extreme and get a 65 Porsche 356 and restore it and, and get the damn car into six car magazines and whatever I did, all of that. It doesn't, it, it gave me, it gave me no, no pride. It gave me no satisfaction. Um, it gave me no satisfaction. I mean, I would trade that car this moment. I mean, without even blinking for, you know, my camera. I mean, there, there's no, there's, what I can do with my camera is, it's, I've never had anything as rewarding as this in my entire life. And that's just, that's the truth. So, but, so maybe a younger man, I, I, I was uh, sidetracked or I was focused on the wrong things. But, you know, you go to business school, what do you want to do? You want to be a good businessman, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be a good businessman. Um, but in retrospect, it's just, you know, comparing it to where I'm at now, uh, my most important thing, nothing that I did in my business was important to me. I mean, other than being able to provide for my family very well, um, outside of that, um, I don't give a damn about any of it. I know I joked earlier on about the fact that as midlife crisis choices go, wet plate clodion is kind of a, an odd one. But the thing is, I, I do think that, I mean, we're of a vaguely similar age, all of us here. Well, we don't know about Claire. Claire may be either 70 <laughs> or 17. We haven't yet figured it out. But I do think that as, as somebody who is in, you know, I'm in my mid 40s now, you, you do get to this time of your life where you're you're hopefully halfway through and you 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 stop and you think okay that first half is done what do i want the next half to look like what and you you do think about these things and um and i think it it's yours is it's such an amazing case of finding the path that it was i i i don't kind of believe in these things but it almost like oh this was this, you are the right person. This was meant to happen. You are there for a reason. You are there to do this thing to capture these images of all these Native Americans. That's like you found what you were supposed to be there doing, and it's it's kind of amazing. Um, and so, I, I, my last question, I guess, is um, you've talked about that it's going to take you reckon about fifteen years to finish that project. Do you mm -hmm. think you ever actually will finish it? Can you see a day where you go, okay? I'm not taking any more pictures of Native Americans. If people turn up, I'm going to go, no, I've done my thousand. Or do you think that this is likely something that you will always be doing? I've been asked that and there, absolutely, there's no way I'm stopping at a thousand. I just, I, I started at 10, that was my goal. And then I went to 50 and then I went to a hundred and then it said, well, screw this. I just, I, I gotta, I gotta throw something down that's just not attainable. I, I need to push myself. And then I said a thousand. So no, there will be a plate thousand and one and a thousand and two. And hopefully there's a plate 2000, but who knows? Uh, but you can only ask for so much, right? It, it, you know, going back to, you know, you lived half your life and now, you know, what's it all about? But, you know, most of us, like I know myself, I struggled, like I struggled, you know, I, I struggled though when I lived in California for 10 years. I mean, I ate ramen noodles three times a day, not three times a week, not because I like ramen noodles, because I could have a meal for 12 cents. So, um, but when you get over the struggling, you should, or I shouldn't preach like this, but you, you should ask yourself, what can I do now to give back a little bit? And that's all I'm, all I'm doing. It's like, I'm, and so now I'm no longer struggling. I still realize that there's people struggling out there. You guys still there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Oh, still sorry, I, I thought we lost. 
Oh, no. Just completely yeah. enthralled by what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. But I, you know, once you're done struggling, um, what's it all about, you guys? So you ask yourself, um, what's it all about? And then you think, oh, well, maybe I can do something for someone else. And it, wouldn't it be a beautiful world if, if we all got to a point in our lives where we could just start doing stuff from somebody else and how that could multiply and how how you know that thought could carry on and how much better this world would be so um and i i realize that there's people struggling i got friends that um you know they can't make plates because they have to wait to to order another 300 dollars bottle of silver um you know i'm not in that position and and i can't take that for granted and i and i and i've got to um um i've got to do the best that i can and i've at the end of the day i have to feel fortunate for um what i have but it is corny but i have always meant to i've always been meant to do this this is what um people go their entire lives and sometimes i feel guilty because i found in my life what i needed to do or what i need to do and i know that there are people um you know go their entire life and never find that so when you do find it you better appreciate it and even more so you should maybe use it to give back to someone else Claire, have you got anything, because I know we, I've, I've been hogging the conversation a lot, have you got anything before we get out of here that you no, want to ask I, th- I think um, I think Shane answered it earlier because I was quite intrigued as to how many, roughly how many plates you would take in, in one sitting and would it be around five maximum then? What you um, last, last week was really busy, I took eight last okay. week. Okay. And when I take my plates here on... Um, on Friday, my next plate is plate 3714. So I've numbered every one of them since plate number one. So every plate, wherever it exists in the world, has got an, a sequential number on it. Every plate's been numbered, every plate's been dated ever since the first one. And I don't know why so early on I decided that that was something to do, but I sure, I'm sure i really glad that I did it because everything is, um, everything is documented to the plate number. Perfect. But yeah, you know, yeah, on a, on a, on a my comfort level if i would make five plates on a, a full friday that's yeah. that's a busy day yeah can i push it i mean three weeks ago i made 13 native american portraits in one day wow um i felt like someone punched me in the gut at the end of that <laughs> I, mean, I just i was i went up to the house and i was just spent i mean it's yeah. um it, it it just takes a toll on me um, because because I, I get so involved in it, I just mm. um, I have so much vested in it. And it's not a bad thing. I mean, I'm, I'm you know I'm talking about getting punched in the gut. I mean, in a good way. I just felt like <laughs> the wind was just taken out. I could not do any more that day. I was that was it. That's what I could do. Thirteen plates. And that it sounds that's like crazy. quite an, it sounds like quite an emotional thing as well. Not just the physical aspect of it. It's, you're 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 having to invest yourself personally in everybody. You're you're taking an image of aren't you you know it's that in itself is quite draining and and i'm living up to this whole um trying to make this an experience a good positive experience for the people that come in you know what i mean like i'm I, I find myself explaining, you know, explaining everything, you know, I could explain everything 10 times a day over and over and, and try to, you know, and then you try to mix things up. You don't always want, you don't want to get repetitive. I want to change my repertoire too. And, and, but, it, but that helps me prepare for when the college students come out because now when they come out and, you know, they're, they're 
20 of them come out or something, it's, I can really give them, I can immerse them. I've got all kinds of examples. We could do all demonstrations here. I got all these props and I have these old cameras and all these old lenses and I can go through the whole history of photography. And it, it's really becoming this, um, almost like a, like a show. Um, that I put on when these students come in because that's I, I, I want to leave an impression on them. I don't want to I don't want to touch every one of them. I don't need that. I need to just touch one of them. I just need to be be able to get through to one of them and inspire one of them um, to to and it doesn't have to be photography. Just inspire them to do find what we've been talking about, right? Find that one. You're no longer struggling. Get to that point where you're no longer struggling, and then find something for yourself. Life isn't meant to struggle your whole life, but some people, you know, they don't have no choice. And I, I feel I feel bad for that. Well, we should probably wrap things up because we've kept you for quite a I, long time. I do have one very quick question, which hasn't actually I'll come allow up. It. Uh, sorry. <laughs> um, what size plates are you making? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I started my first camera was um uh five by seven and and um but i, I all my serious work anything in my studio is an eight by ten so everything's an eight by ten it's a black glass amber type so uh, amber type means eternal impression in latin and um it's a historic name that's what they call them but they're, they're essentially you know people you you so for some of your listeners may not know they heard of tin types before um don't be confused a tin type is no different than an amber type it's the same process it's the wet plate clothing process i'm just pouring my my images onto glass instead of on a to a piece of tin so there's no difference between tin type and what i'm doing um i'm making positive images for viewing because i i like the entire one-off only one in the world kind of feel to each mm -hmm. one of my plates um but what they would have historically been doing if we want to really point to the accuracy of this they would have been making um, clear glass negatives um so like for instance when orlando scott goff uh, took the portrait of sitting bull that was not a black glass amber type because if he would have made a black glass amber type of sitting bull remember he paid him 50 bucks to come in and and, and city bull came in and we documented this and we have the story from the bismarck tribune um city bull came in and sat down and he had that one chance of the one exposure as soon as the exposure was done city bull stood up and walked out the door but goff promised uh gave city bull 50 dollars, which was about 1800 in today's money i want to say um for that one portrait he would have made a clear glass piece so that he could make contact prints and make numerous contact prints so that he could sell numerous pieces. If he would have mm -hmm. made a black glass piece like I did of Evander Holyfield, there's only one of those in the world. And it's just this, this, yeah, I scan it and I can use technology, but they didn't have this kind of technology back then, right? I mean, they didn't even have, I mean, copy machines, there's no such thing. So, I mean, you would have had to do a contact print. So you would have made a negative and from that you could have done. And the, the, the prints that you would have made were always the size of the plate there wasn't like mm -hmm. they didn't even have enlargers and stuff at that point so if you wanted an 8 by 10 print you had to shoot an 8 by 10 glass plate and um so that's a little bit different um uh, that's just me my preferences and they did do a lot of positives because like claire if claire had a husband and she would take him into a tin typist and he would take her uh, his portrait on a little piece of tin and she put a nice little brass frame and put it in her in her purse or carried around on her on her body so that she could have a picture of her husband um they did do positives but uh, if you were a photographer and you wanted to really make real money and you, and you had a, a famous person uh, abraham lincoln for instance you weren't going to make a black glass or a tin type of abraham lincoln board likely you would have been making a negative because you could make a thousand prints 
or you can make another yeah. thousand prints later. And, and that it was just, um, it was the nature of the beast. And they were trying, I mean, photographers were trying to make money and, and, and they didn't have, you know, and that's why a lot of these older photographs, they don't have dates on them and who the person is or none of that stuff, because they were just, what were they doing? They were making a living, you know, they weren't, they weren't thinking, Oh, I got to think about 160 years from now, someone, you know, Shane's going to buy this on eBay and he's going to want to know who this is and where it was taken and who my name is as the photographer. They, they didn't have that, that thought process. I don't think, I mean, I can't speak for them. Um, we've talked about a lot of places people can go to see your work, Shane. Uh, the documentary, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, as we said, in the UK, it's on Amazon Prime or elsewhere. They can People can find it on Vimeo. Um, uh, where else do you most particularly want to point our listeners to to go and see so many of the pictures we've talked about tonight and many, many more? Yeah, the, just go to Google and just type in Bulkwitch, and I'll spell Bulkwitch out for the guy, people trying to find the documentary. So it's my last name, um, B-A-L-K-O-W-I-T-S-C-H. B-A-L-K-O-W-I-T-S-C-H. If you go into Google and type in Bulkwitch, wet plate behind it, two words, you'll have find my websites and my blogs, and uh, you you find many many different articles and you'll, you'll find everything you need to, to, to see there if you get to that website that you were talking about graham um you can go back to the archive there's links here and you go back all the way and what, what the heck was shane doing in 2013 and and um you, you can see all of that but um uh there's plenty to look at and and i'm just i'm i'm, I'm honored to be on sunny 16. I'm, i've listened to the podcast i've known about the podcast for some time and um i'm just grateful that you guys think that my work's uh, worthy of uh um, um, listening to what I have to say about my work on your show. Duh. It's been an absolute delight chatting to you, Shane. Absolute delight. Yeah, and getting to hear the story behind some of the I mean, you know, it's the, the, as you said earlier, there's so much to talk about. There's so much we could have gone into the technical, the process side, um, everything like that, and all of your inspirations. And there's so many other aspects. We'll have to do this again one day. We'll have to do this again. Yeah, I mean, I hope there's more adventures and then we can uh, we can revisit and, and, and pick up where we left off. But I, I, you guys really made me feel comfortable. And um, I hope your listeners find um, any of this interesting. The, the podcast, I like you said, I, I don't think people will ever be um, – they will be very happy to watch the podcast because they're not out every day. A large format documentary comes out. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's kind of a small crowd that we have here. So it's, uh, I'm very proud of what uh, they both did in that documentary. So thank you so much for uh, letting me mention it. It's been a pleasure. Um, John, where can people find you? Uh, at the dark shed on Twitter and Instagram and John Whitmore photography.co.uk where they can go and become a supporter, can't they? A patron, that's the yes, right word. they can indeed. And, and get a copy of your fantastic museum, which we haven't been able to talk to you about yet, but, well, next week. <laughs> next week. Time next will week, come. Time will come. And, and oh, instantly on that one, does the code still work that I forgot to mention it last week? It does indeed, yeah. Somebody's just redeemed one in the last hour, actually. Ooh, so what is that code? <laughs> what does it do? The code is sunny16. Uh, just enter it on checkout, and you'll get a free postcard pack. There you go. Nice. Fantastic. And Claire, where can people find you? Um, I'm Claire Marie Bailey um, on Instagram and, and Twitter and, yeah, on my website. Perfect stuff. And, of course, you can get in touch with us at sunny16podcast at gmail.com. Please do write in. We love hearing from you guys. We will play you out, as always, with Rachel's fabulous band, Rocha. Hopefully we'll have Rach back on real soon. She's super busy at the moment, but hopefully she'll be back with us very soon because we miss Rach. We miss her a lot. We do. Um, we do. 
We, and also, oh, accident, inc accidentally and incidentally, all of these things, uh, because this is going to go out on Thursday. On Saturday, it's Rachel's birthday. So if you're on social media or on Instagram or on Twitter, please, everybody, wish Rachel a very happy birthday. I can't tell you how old it is because it's obviously it's rude to let people know a lady's birthday, especially her 40th birthday. So I'm going to keep it stum, but just wish her a happy birthday anyway. Um, uh, anyway, where we? Oh, yeah. Um, we'll play you out with old Rachel's lovely music. Uh and um, thank you so much for listening, Shane. Thank you so much for joining us again. We will be back with you soon. Uh, goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.